I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, it'll be the last episode of 2018, which means it's time for my end-of-the-year superlatives. But before we get to that, I'll have to review the last theatrical releases for 2018, which are both from Gary Sanchez Productions. First up is Holmes and Watson, which is a somewhat comedic take quote-unquote, on the Sherlock Holmes mythos brought to us by Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, And then Adam McKay is doing another biopic, this time about Vice President Dick Cheney. Then we're going to do a quick Netflix and chat about Watership Down, Gretzuko's We Wish You a Metal Christmas, Roma, the latest from Alfonso Cuaron, and Bird Box. So, let's get started. left to live. Solve this case. Her Majesty, would you mind if we had a picture together? Watson, who's going to take the photograph? I will take it. You see, it's sort of a self-photograph. He's a real fan. I swear, I never do this. Hey, girl! Hey, girl! Over by the window, the lighting's much better. Oh, my God! Mother of shit! I'm going to start off the bat here. This will be my unpopped kernel of the week. This really is the worst thing to have come out this week. And it is un- in- almost inexcusable how bad it is. Don't be surprised if this ends up on a lot of people's worst of the year list. Because it genuinely is that bad. This is this is arguably the turning point, I think, for um, Riley and Farrell as a duo. Because it, even though... I never saw Step Brothers. I never thought that looked appealing to me. It completely looked like the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And I probably wouldn't have laughed. I probably would have laughed some po- at some point. But I don't think I would have laughed all that much uh, from what I've seen in the trailers. Nothing about it seems all that appealing to me, at least. And uh, Talladega Nights is I haven't seen in years. So I have no idea if it holds up at all. But I think people are... Uh, like, they've done so much better on their own and as you know they seem to have improved somewhat comedically and yet here they are completely reverting back to how they were like a decade ago like step brothers came out 9 years ago and they're still doing this like you'd think they would have mature, you know improved at some point in terms of their comedic chops but apparently they relegated to doing this crap again it feels like this was made a decade ago, and they just now got around to releasing it. But no, this was made recently. This is they think they can still get away with this kind of crap, and I think people are finally starting to turn on them because they. I haven't heard. I only heard a few people saying positive things, and most of those positive things were, "Yeah, I kind of liked it." It's not even like praise, which is what Step Brothers. Some Step Brothers for a lot of people is some of, is their favorite comedy. And I have yet to hear anyone say anything good about Sherlock Holmes other than it was okay. So, yeah, what we've got here is uh, Farrell, Will Farrell is Sherlock Holmes and John C. Riley is John Watson. And in the same year that Sherlock Gnomes came out, this is somehow the worst attempt to parody the mythos. And Sherlock Gnomes was absolutely atrocious. I mean, it was... Sadly, neither of these are bad enough to get my, to make my worst of the year list. But both of them are just the worst attempts to try and parody uh, Sherlock Holmes. I believe someone said... Uh, someone People were mentioning, like, uh, an alternative. And um, 
I forget what the name of it was. It was, but it was basically a com- a, a much better comedic take on uh, Sherlock Holmes, where Sherlock Holmes is a is a raving lunatic and John Watson is the smart one. But yeah, I mean, this really is one of the worst attempts to try. Like the Great Mouse Detective was a better better parody. Uh, I mean, that's not saying much. It is an amazing movie and it is a great parody of Sherlock Holmes. But this it but this movie is absolutely like it's like they only had a tertiary knowledge of the character and the mythos and they just knew the basics and thought ah we'll just be stupid and think that that amounted to comedy like even like even the ones that would make sense like oh john watson is a doctor in the 1800s so he prescribes heroin to people that yeah, that's a one line, and it never and it never really we they barely acknowledge how just ludicrous medicine was in that point in history. If anything, the the more they do is just really stupid on the nose jokes. There is a full I want to say three to five minutes of them essentially hammering the point that John, Donald Trump is president. That's that's literally an entire string of jokes is about, oh, no one. Oh, look at how silly American democracy is and saying, no, no one that horrible, tyrannical and stupid could ever become president. It's like, yes, thank you. Thank you. We get it. Donald Trump is president. You got something else to say besides that? Like there are people who can do actual jokes if you can, if you, if you know, you don't have to be here if you don't want to actually tell jokes. Uh, And then, of course. There's like two running bits, uh, two bits of a running joke where Americans are gun crazy. That doesn't amount to anything. It's just there because that's their attempt at at cultural satire. Ugh, it, it it's so so pointless. Like the whole premise here is that John Watson wants to be considered an equal to Holmes and it's about Sherlock Holmes overcoming his own ego and acknowledging how great John Watson is and that's it like there are plenty of that's what Sherlock that's literally what Sherlock Gnomes was about and it did that better it did Sherlock Gnomes handled uh Sherlock overcoming his own ego to realize how good of a friend and good of an intellect John Watson is better than this movie Think about that. That's how low the bar is. And they still couldn't cross it. Uh, Ray Fiennes is completely wasted as uh, Moriarty. Th- there's no point to him as Moriarty. It, they do nothing. He's basically there to stare to the camera menacingly and then take his paycheck and leave. Which is probably the smartest thing he's ever done. Uh, just absolutely w- wastes um, Steve Coogan. In a bit part, it wastes so much good comedic talent to just be stupid, just just lazy, lazy. That's the biggest. Part. That's the biggest thing is that this is all lazy. Any schmuck can make these jokes. In fact, most people have already made these jokes. Do you have something better for us or not? That's. I think that's the worst part is that this feel, and I think the problem is once again it's woefully underwritten. I would not be surprised if they only had. You know, an outline set in place, and then they just improv the rest of it because that's how comedies are made nowadays. Nobody wants to sit down and hone and write and perfect the jokes. They would just rather be funny on camera and think that amounted to something. Like, like that's the whole point is that be, improv comedians were able to take what was written, maybe throw in a bit here or there, 
off the top of their head if they came up with something and then you would but then you would still have the story there and the jokes there the improvs were like icing on the cake now and now it's like you're trying to make the cake out of fondant you know oh yeah it's nice it's it's a nice touch on the cake you don't make the cake out of fondant you know uh I only know that because of cook, the, the cooking show net, uh, friends who watch like Great British Bake Off and nailed it and, and cooking all kinds of cooking and baking shows. But yeah, my point still stands. This is trying to make it a cake entirely out of icing and then no cake. How do you expect it to hold up? It's just literally a pile of frosting. That's not a cake. That's a pile of frosting. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, and let's not forget the dumbest thing—the thing that broke my nephew's mind. This turned into bad. This turned into bad movie squad between the two of us because we got to see the climax happen on the Titanic, and you see it in the trailer. So I'm not giving anything away. But the Titanic is in this movie, and if you know anything about actual history, that will piss you off to no end. It it is the dumbest ending set piece you could have picked. You could have picked literally. It didn't have. To be the Titanic. And yet they made it the Titanic because they cause they were that stupid. They're that lazy. They couldn't just make it a ship. It couldn't just be a ship. It had to be the Titanic. So they could make random Titanic jokes at the end. Ugh. Good lord. Yeah, it's this is the worst I've seen from uh, Farrell and Riley. I have yet to see... Step Brothers, that may be worse for me. I, 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 I would, I don't want to revisit that. I don't want to visit that unless I absolutely have to. So yeah, this is this is the pits, and I kind of wish they would just go their separate ways. Unless they want to do an ensemble comedy and do something better, and they have a script ready, I'd rather this just them do their own separate things because they clearly don't work well together anymore. They don't have it anymore. Whatever it was that made them funny in the back in the day, it's gone now. It's gone now, and nobody cares anymore. Just don't even bother. So we gonna do this thing, or what? I mean, is this happening? I believe we can make this work. <laughs> Hot damn! Surprisingly, the better of the two Gary Sanchez productions this week was Vice, and that's not saying much either because yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a really really hot mess of a movie. I won't say it's bad; it's a complete hot mess of a movie. Uh, the premise here is basically that of the story, the, the life story of Vice President Dick Cheney, and basically how much of a steaming dumpster fire of a person he was. But at least he wasn't hateful towards his gay daughter. Like, that's his only really redeeming quality, was that he wasn't a dick to his gay daughter until it benefited him in some way. You know, until it until it somehow ma- became more beneficial to allow her to be discriminated against. But he, otherwise, he didn't care. But otherwise, he doesn't care that she's gay. Like, that's the only redeeming quality. He doesn't care his daughter's gay. Good for him. He's still a, he's still a absolutely unabashed person piece of human trash and this movie has basically proved that of the entire cheney family like it doesn't shy away from the fact that these people are basically the most despicable people you can imagine 
And I, I may be partisan in saying that, but I have no qual- – like they're so – they're the worst aspects of human nature personified really. And and I'm so, – and yeah, maybe you – like they're – they're uh, – yeah, they were – like they've a distinct scene at the very beginning where it's like Lynn Cheney is incredulous that – Dick Ch- that 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 um, Richard Nixon. I, I got them. I, I got myself all f- flustered there for a second. But yeah, they're watching the resignation of Richard Nixon, and she's like, "How could this happen to such a wonderful man?" Oh my God! Seriously, you thought he was wonderful? He's not even the best of the Republican presidents. He's an absolute monster. Like seriously, you're sad that he had to resign. For breaking the law? Are you kidding me? I mean, those I knew those people existed, but my dad is the staunchest of Republicans. He is a full-on Reagan-era, you know, trickle-down economics type of Republican. And even he acknowledges Richard Nixon needed to resign. He's not that stupid to think the president is above the law. That somehow he shouldn't have had to resign... He's not that stupid. <laughs> really? 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 I'm, I mean, really. But, yeah. I know those people existed. And, yeah, this is why I say that the Cheneys are kind of trash people. I don't care. Uh, and and from, what I, from, everything I can, from everything I can glean from this movie, it's, it's pretty much, yeah. And, this, and that may be a bias on this movie's part. They, but at the same time... Would you really, like, do do you really, like, is it really hard to believe that Dick and Lynn Cheney are the, are like, are essentially like parasites looking for the best mean, the most fat and easily duped host that they can, you know, leech off of? You know, they're that opportunistic and that maniacal and that egotistical and narcissistic. Like, is that so hard to believe that they're like that? Uh, yeah, every, but at the same time, like Amy Adams and Christian Bale, they do a good job. Like Christian Bale nails the mannerisms of Dick Cheney. You know, I can't say he did a bad job. The problem is in the, this movie isn't the actors, nor is it the story itself. The story of Dick Cheney is perfectly ripe for critique and further delving into like, like everything about this movie that dealt with the fact that Dick Cheney was kind of a monstrous human being. Uh, when you think about it is not, that's not the problem I had with this movie. The problem I had with this movie is that it's a complete hot mess. Like that's the thing. If this was a straight biopic about all of the monstrous deeds that happened because of Dick Cheney's actions and his his machinations and his sort of Machiavellian techniques, that's not my problem. My problem is Adam McKay tried to add in all sorts of weird points of levity where they literally stop the movie so Amy Adams and Christian Bale can essentially recite Shakespearean text to us because the joke was because that's that was a joke. The joke was um we're not we're not here to dramatize. We don't know what they actually said, so we're not going to try to dramatize it like it's House of Cards or something. And then it's it does a full stop in order to take a weird detour into Amy Adams and Christian Bale reciting Shakespeare. Essentially, it is so bizarre. The movie stops itself midpoint to do a a a, a, 
a cre- a fake credits gag. Like like he, like it's Phelous. Like if you watched Phelous and he's done those sort of early credits gags, the movie, this movie does that. It, it resorted to a tactic used by internet reviewers. <laughs> oh man, it is so weirdly bizarre the comedy bits do not mesh with the drama and with the reality of this man like to try and add weird points of dark levity to this movie by just doing full stops on the momentum of the story in order to be loot just over the top crazy and that's the other thing too like they have an omniscient narrator and when they reveal who the narrator is it doesn't make any damn sense. Not only that, the narrator isn't even consistent because the narrator will stop being... The narrator is being played by Jesse Plemons, who is narrating the whole thing. But somehow he's a real person and the omniscient narrator, but will also transition into a random woman who is talking on the TV as a newscaster to then also finish his narration sentence. Like she's interrupting to finish his sentence for him. It is so... What is this movie? What is this movie? I don't understand the points in this movie. It's like it's like he has ADHD and he had random thoughts of oh I can I know of a joke I can put in here and he decides to leave it in there instead of saying you know we don't need to add weird like the levity that deals with the actual story of Dick Cheney that deals within the universe of Dick Cheney that part isn't that part works it helps to alleviate have some dark you know, cynical humor to kind of break the tension of what's really going on. But when it does full stop to do almost meta commentary on the, on society in the midst of this biopic, it, the, the train just comes crashing to a stop and it's, and it's like, it go all, it it kind of falls itself off the tracks. It doesn't go full off the rails, but it it gets itself off the track and, and pretty much, you know, has an almost full on collision. It it's so, it's so weird. It's so weird. It, it like th- like think about this. This is a movie where Tyler Perry is playing Secretary of State Colin Powell. That's this movie in a nutshell. It's like how does this work? Like that's not even that Tyler Perry is a bad actor. Like he was fine in Gone Girl. He was fine in Star Trek. And you know he's not terrible in his own right. But him as Colin Powell, like. There was nobody else. There wasn't anybody else you could think of to play Colin Powell. Because he doesn't really play... Like, he stands... Amy Adams and Christian Bale kind of lean into their roles as uh, when Dick and Lynn Cheney. Uh, Steve Carell kind of, you know, is a bit... He kind of stands out a bit, but he's not... He kind of stand, comes out of through his performance of Donald Rumsfeld, but he's still able to perform it to, to a point. Sam Rockwell completely envelops the role of George W. Bush. Tyler Perry is not Colin Powell. Like, you cannot think of Colin Powell when you look at Tyler Perry trying to play Colin Powell. It is... It stands out so vividly to you that you wonder why... Why him? Of all people, why him? Really? Um... I mean that's a but that's the thing. It doesn't shy away from Cheney's actions and the repercussions, but at the same time, it all it also did a random montage of like ties to ISIS and how Cheney's actions are responsible for that, and the and like the California wildfires. And it's like, yeah, okay, I get it. Dick Cheney is one of those guys who helped helped 
Republicans kind of deregulate in the environmental con- controls and give more and give more freedom to corporations that that helped kind of ruin the environment in the sense that that caused the California wildfire. But to have that in your movie, to try and tie it in all together, it's like almost making Dick Cheney a boogeyman when it clearly wasn't just him. It was the Koch brothers. It was, you know, all all sorts of Republican insiders and different um, uh, uh, talking heads and Roger Ailes, who's barely who's only mentioned in passing until uh, until it's relevant. It's like there are so many people involved in that that it wasn't obviously just Dick Cheney. So to have the whole thing of like, oh, here's all of these terrible things that are happening in the world and Dick Cheney is responsible for it. And it's like, OK, come on, don't push it. That That's like. Dinesh D'Souza level tactics of pushing for of pushing for these kinds of things. Like, okay, yes, some things are st- you know some of the repercussions of the Iraq War of of um, you know of the deregulation of corporations and of you know the deregulation of gov- the dump you know the deregulation of you know industry and whatnot is is clearly a problem that Dick Cheney and everybody in the Republican Party is responsible for. It is clearly not just him. So to lay it all in on this one guy in his life story as though it's his responsibility solely when clearly it was every this was a group effort guys like this was clearly a group effort and this movie took a time out to be like point point the figure at him like Donald Sutherland in Invasion of the Body Snatchers as though it was Dick Cheney's fault entirely but it's no like he yeah he was a he's a miserable despicable human being in my eyes but he's not the only one responsible for this crap. There are plenty of people who are just as responsible for all of the all these problems that we're having, and to have and to take the time out to just from from this movie to be to point the finger at him and say Jacques is a waste of time. Honestly, like there was a good movie in here. There was there was the element there were the elements of a good movie within this, but Adam McKay went off on weird tangents so he's kind of like to uh, tie back to my storyteller analogy last week um he's the storyteller who is doing the job of retelling the story life of the life story of dick cheney and relating to all of these things and all of a sudden he'll do go off on weird tangents of like doing silly voices and breaking the fourth wall and and being like and then then all these terrible things are happening and it's like whoa You've completely missed the point, my dude. Can you get back to the point you were making? Uh, so, yeah. Vice. I have no idea if The Big Short is any good. That was the last biopic he did, uh, based on a true story sort of thing. And it was apparently in the similar vein. I think maybe it that one w- may have worked better because it wasn't as serious as the kind of things that Dick Cheney was responsible for. So trying to do that with him particularly it feels kind of in poor taste. But at the same time, like, even if it was in poor taste, and it, as long as it worked, it would have been fine. But this doesn't work. This just doesn't work. It's kind of, like I said, it's a complete hot mess. So, honestly, you're better off watching something else. I'm sure you, I'm sure there are plenty of documentaries to, uh, about Dick Cheney and all the kinds of crap he did, but that aren't riddled with weird side tangents that, that ultimately uh, detract from the whole movie. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. 
part of the problem with living in, uh, you know, a rel- not a small town. Akron's not small, small. Like, we have multiple movie theaters, so it's not like we're a small town. But we're living in a small market place. Like, um, what is it? Yeah, like, uh, uh, I listened to a radio show uh, based out of Cleveland, and they always talk about market shares and markets. And, um, yeah, Akron and Cleveland especially is not the biggest market when it comes for movies. The big ones are mainly New York and L.A. That's where all the main critics and studios and stuff are. You've got Toronto, you've got Chicago, you've got Vancouver. Those are places that see a lot of the main... And, of course, major, you know, Houston, Miami, I think, all will have areas where you can see limited release runs, mainly New York and L.A. So living in Akron, I don't get to see a lot of the really neat, independent stuff until it comes out on video or until it gets, you know, unless it's tied into Netflix or Amazon or something, which is thankfully how I got to see Roma, which is, uh, I mainly heard about Roma in a tweet that went somewhat viral. It got passed about a bit. It, it was not, it wasn't like virulent. It wasn't, you know, everywhere, but in my circles, it got passed around for a for about a day. And it was mainly about a guy, some white guy movie critic was like the most overrated movies of 2018 and it was literally anything that had to do with a minority group roma was on there black panther the hate the hate you give sorry to bother you love simon i think was on there so basically anything that dealt with a minority group he thought was overrated so yeah yeah i bet bet he loved aquaman though right uh um so yeah, I, that was where I that was the that was the only thing I heard about Roma being overrated. Having watched it, no, it's perfectly well rated. Uh, it's not my thing. This isn't the kind of movie I go and seek out. This isn't you know this is uh, this is full on art film, not like not like imp- not like almost up its own ass pretentious art film, but it's a small slice of life, very much uh, cinema tech style of movie. So that's not the kind of genre I seek out. That's not the kind of thing that that I find riveting or entertaining or anything like that. It is um but that's not to say it's bad either. It is genuinely a good movie because Alfonso Cuarón can't do a bad movie. Like even though I didn't love um Prisoner of Azkaban, it's not a bad movie. It's a bad Harry Potter movie in my opinion. It's not a bad movie. Because I don't think Quaron is capable of doing a overtly bad movie. I think that's the other thing. I didn't. I wasn't all that into Gravity either. I wouldn't say Gravity is a bad movie either. So I don't think he's capable of doing bad movies. Uh, and that's the case. And in fact, this one is genuinely very good. Uh, it's not one of me. It's not going to be one of my favorites. But I like. But I'm not mad that I saw it. I don't feel like I was. My time was wasted or anything. Like, I would have much rather watched Roma in theaters than I would have Holmes and Watson or Vice. So, yeah, but the premise here, without giving too much away, is the movie is set in 1970, which I had to look up, honestly. There isn't really an establishing, either in text form, uh, through subtext on the movie, like, Mexico City, 1970. There's not a dateline, nor is there, like, a news story or a newspaper that says, you know, 1970. So I had to look that up 
to be sure. But yeah, basically, this is based in 1970 Mexico City, where there was a lot of unrest and turmoil. Like there is, you know, protests in the street, and there was a massive like it's set against um, leading into the events of the Corpus Christi mass Corpus Christi massacre. Which, for those who don't know, which, like myself, I had to look up, uh, was a point where the Mexican, Mexico City police used paramilitary a paramilitary group that they trained to shoot at student protesters when they refused to disperse. <laughs> yeah. Good thing things have changed. Uh, you know, these kids aren't getting shot in the streets. Right. Anyway, um, set against that, you have the story of Cleo, who is a, a not a not a maid, but a sort of employed housekeeper. Like she and another older woman, Ad- Adela, um, are work for this well-to-do uh, Mexico City family, where the husband's a doctor and the wife is a biochemist and teacher, and. While this is go- while the unrest, political unrest, is going on in the background, we are focusing mainly on the family tensions between the family that Cleo works for falling apart, and her own her own relationship and life sort of going through a tumultuous period when um, she finds out that she's pregnant. And uh, without giving too much away, um, I won't say what specifically happens. It plays out really beautifully, though. Uh, but basically, Cleo has to deal with not only her own life kind of going through a rough patch, but her her employer's life going like there's points where the wife will come home stinking drunk and crash the car into their tiny, narrow garage. And it's it's, you know, things are that bad. And it's her trying to deal help raise these kids uh, who are also kind of kind of tuned into that things aren't right. And yeah, it's it's all shot in black and beautifully in black and white. And uh, yeah, I I really um, I really liked it. I, I didn't love it as much as a lot of people did. This is going to be one of those that ends up on a lot of people's best of the year list. It is my pick of the week. This is my uh, you know this is the one I would recommend people go to check out. But it, it yeah, it's ultimately you know it, it's more about um, like. The slice of life story about this young woman who is, you know, poor except for the fact that she works for a very wealthy family who helps to take care of her. And it's about her trying, you know, kind, 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 bleh, trying to get through this rough patch in her life. And th- there are points in this movie that make you vi- viciously angry at some people. And it's like, oh, 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 you know, like if you were there, you would deck somebody. You would knock somebody the F out. <laughs> I know I did. Um but yeah, you feel for this girl so much, and it's such a you know such a beautifully told story, and I definitely recommend. This is my pick of the week, even though it's not going to end up on my best of the year list or anything. I know uh, last year Shape of Water was a last minute entry onto my lists, but Roma. I think the problem is Roma is very you know that cinematech art house style never appealed to me. I always I would much rather a more upfront direct filmmaking style like Caron usually does. Like if Caron shot this normally, I I would have I would have thought this was fine. I thought it was good too. But, you know, the the kind of black and white almost almost like there's a like this feels like something you would see in an art house art house theater. 
and it definitely deserves its nomination. I think it's best foreign language piece for Mexico. I forget what, but he definitely been get passed around the film festivals and it's been getting a lot of awards and it's definitely worth watching. So if you have Netflix, go, definitely go watch this. It's very good, but it's just not for me. But I'm not going to say it's overrated because it's not overrated. It is very well rated. It is very accurately rated. People are praising it because it deserves praise because it's genuinely good. So, yes, Roma is good. Go see it. Um, the thing else that actually surprised me and how good it was was the BBC Netflix co-production adaptation miniseries of Watership Down. The CGI was really off-putting in the trailer. I think the problem is they showed some of the lesser bits of the animation. But thankfully, there are bits that make up for it that are really well shot. The, I think the best shot they did was a slow-mo shot of Kihar in the rain, uh, which looks absolutely stunning to behold. But otherwise, this isn't very good at action. The action is very cheap-looking, almost video game-esque, like a really bad video game. And... Otherwise, yeah, it's kind of off-putting to try and see them in this style. I feel like if they went for the 2D animation style, it would have been much better. This is much better suited to 2D than the CGI, re- photorealistic, I think. This is the, but, yeah, that's just me. At the same point, uh, it makes up for that with really great writing and storytelling and acting, voice acting. The voice cast for this is phenomenal. James McAvoy and Nicholas Holt are unrecognizable as uh, Hazel and Fiverr. I could not recognize either of them. In their performances. I couldn't, I couldn't, pit, like, John Boyega, you can clearly hear as Bigwig. And you can clearly hear Daniel Kaluuya as Bluebell, the storyteller. And, but I completely lost track of James McAvoy and Nicholas Holt. I did not recognize him at all. Ben Kingsley as Gener- General Woodward? Oh, just, just, mwah. He's so perfect for villains. He knows exactly how well to play a, vi- a good villain. And Woodward is even more menacing and powerful in this iteration. Because that's the thing. The second half of this mo- of these miniseries does not shy away from fascist dictatorships. It does not shy away from the harsh realities of living under fascism. It is up front with the horrors of fascism in this b- movie about miniseries about bunnies. It does not shy away from just the absolute psychological trauma and horror that's going on. It is really good in that regard. Uh, but at the same time, there are weird points where to also take a stop to be like, why is man bad? Like, there's a whole point where Clover, who I believe is played by uh, Gemma Arterton, uh, who's a hutch rabbit, has a full-on conversation that feels like it's feels like it's out of a 90s environmental con- uh PSA, where it's like, why is man so bad, Hazel? Shouldn't, you know, man has no care for the for the world. They, they only care about themselves. And it's like, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I got it. Man bad. I, I know. I, I don't even disagree with you. I completely agree with you, but Man, y'all need to try harder than that. There are way better means of having that dialogue be about how the ills of man have affected them. And they do. They do. Um, like C- Captain Holly, uh, the rabbit who, sur- helped, who escaped from the destruction of their old Warren, comments uh, comments on the e- ills of man way better than Clover and Hazel when they almost look directly into the camera and, be, and are like, why is man bad? 
Uh, yes, we get it. Man can be bad. Can you, can you do better? You can do better. You're clearly doing better. What happened here? Was this like the the final day before you, you had to turn the draft in? It's like, oh, crap. Uh, man, bad. Man, bad. Done. Ugh. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the animation is kind of off-putting. Uh, the other thing that I noticed that if you follow the, uh, if you watch the 70s animated movie, or even if you're British or uh, lived in the Commonwealth and had access to the animated TV series that they did for kids, uh, you'll notice that Kihar does not have an, an affectation. Uh, he does not have a thick accent where it's almost like he is ESL. Uh, in the books, you hear it a bit. He's based off of sort of Eastern European dialects that are trying to speak English. And in the in the in the movie, he's played by Zero Mostel, who definitely plays that up as you know, definitely plays up the uh, the uh, Eastern European aspect of it. Um, in the in the show, they play they they make it very you know they make it very much in that same vein. And then in here, they've consciously changed it so it's, so Kihar isn't like. He's not trying to speak broken English and make it sound like it it is it is almost racial in a way. Like there's a way like trying to play off broken English nowadays is can go very very wrong very quickly if you don't know how to do it right. And they decided, you know what? That's a minefield over there. We're going to avoid that. And they just decided, you know what? Kihar Scottish now, and Peter Capaldi plays him, and I'm completely okay with this. I think Capaldi is Scottish. He may be Irish. Um, let me get this right, because I love Capaldi. I mean, that's the thing. He is kind of almost a bit between his 12th Doctor and um, his t- and uh, and um, Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it. Uh, let me see. Glasgow, Scotland. Yes. So, yeah, he basically... Kihar is Scottish. And... He's basically a bit, he's toned down, so he's a bit rougher around the edges. So he's so like if Malcolm Tucker was in the Doctor Who universe, you know. Malcolm Tucker became, he was, had to be played as the Doctor sort of thing. So he's kind of off-putting and standoffish and big, you know, big-mouthed and doesn't, and you know, blow-hearted. And uh, he, uh, but, but he plays it perfectly. I like I couldn't like I think it's a great interpretation of Kihar uh, that works very well. Um, it's not true to the book so much, but it's at least but it's at least interesting and play and played well. Like if it wasn't somebody other than Capaldi, I don't know how well I would take. Maybe Tennant, maybe Tennant, but I think Capaldi playing him almost like a Malcolm if Malcolm Tucker was a bird but wasn't allowed to say the f word <laughs> uh, that works great. Um, so yeah, uh, I'll t- like I said, great voice cast and uh, the other thing that works well is the dream sequences for Pfeiffer when he has those visions it's almost like something out of a weird horror game you know it's almost like something out of Silent Hill and I it works amazingly well so parts of it work great other parts the animation specifically are kind of what hold it back from being perfect but for what it's worth like if this was reanimated in 2D I think it would have been amazing uh, at least personally speaking, I never was a fan of CG unless it had a purpose and it had a visual styling to it, you know. But here it's pretty cheap, actually. So 
If it was, you know, if it was more of a 2D style, I probably would have enjoyed it even more. But for what it's worth, I think it is a very well... Like, before I watched Roma, this was going to be my pick of the week. Which is saying a lot, because it's not even... It's not, like, I still have to damn it with faint praise a lot of po- at a lot of points. But I genuinely enjoyed this. Um, I still prefer the movie, because I feel like that got to the point a bit better. But for what it's worth, I would absolutely watch this miniseries again. And I probably will at some point. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, aside from Roma, this is going to be my pick of the week. And yeah, if you love the book, I think you'll get a lot out of it. It just know that it's it, it's not as great as it could be. But th- that being said, let's. T- uh, we I also uh, watched Agretsuko's uh, "We Wish You a Metal Christmas," which is sadly just an episode of the show. Like if this was a bit longer, almost like a forty-five minute sort of special, I probably would have gotten more out of it. But it's just another episode of the show. Like, it doesn't really do much of anything to make it a holiday special. It's just set during Christmas and the same episode and it's episode length. So it's like this could have just as easily been included as a, as part of the main series. Why would you call this a special? It doesn't feel special. That's my main criticism. That said, it's still a Gritsuko. So if you like a Gritsuko, I doubt you'll hate this, but it's one of the lesser episodes. I feel like there are much better episodes of the show than this. This this Christmas special isn't very special, at least to me. And yeah, I actually just finished with Bird Box before recording this. Bird Box is Netflix's The Happening. Straight up. This is straight up The Happening, only less funny. The Happening was a glorious train wreck that was hilarious to behold. This is like the happening done by a much more competent filmmaker. It's the happening in the same vein as the as a quiet place. So it's got all the idiocy of the happening, but trying to be a quiet place. So it's trying to be taken a little bit more seriously. Whereas the happening was an absolute train wreck. So, oof, Bird Box. I yeah, it's not it's not even so bad. It's funny. Enjoy the meme. Like, the only reason you would even watch it for the funnies is for the memes that have started to come out of it. Like, that's it. This movie this movie isn't even as mimetic as The Happening. That one was a true meme factory. But this, like, this is just a, this is just a happening. This is The Happening. This is literally The Happening. Netflix, why did you produce The Happening? Or buy out The Happening? I don't know. This is The Happening. Why did I just watch another version of The Happening, only less funny? Like, the whole point of The Happening is you watch it with, like, riff tracks. Or you watch it with friends and you get drunk and you make fun of it. This isn't even that funny. It's just boring. Like, most of it is just boring. Uh, John Malkovich plays the asshole, who is always right. But he's just an asshole, so you hate him. And Sandra Bullock, otherwise he's... He's just there. He's basically like John Malkovich walked on set and he they just left him in the movie. I don't even care if I'm giving too much away. It's not really spoiler heavy so much, but the point here is that instead of the plants, it's demons. And they could have done something cool. They tried to do something cool with the demons in this, but it's more cheap looking and lazy. Like everything about it is doing its best. Like, here's the thing. A quiet place worked because it knew when to show the monster. Here, they never show you the monster. It's just always in shadow or hidden, or they or you see the affects of the monster. You know, the, like you see the world being affected by the monsters, but nothing actually comes of it. And then, um, you know, a quiet place knew where it was able to take uh, the idea of oh, you can't say any loud noises because they're like very they have super sensitive hearing, 
and that yo know, they hear you they come right for you here it's like you can't see look at anything but they but it's never really quite sure like the monsters in the hap in the a quiet place they were predators there are a predatory race of monsters that came for you whenever you, they heard you here it's they're never quite it's weirdly just affects everybody differently but it's never fully established why it affects certain people more differently than others uh there, there's a weird point where uh lil ray is writing a post-apocalyptic book that goes now goes nowhere and he's like meta commenting on the fact that so many post-apocalyptic books have like people hunting with crossbows and fighting in arenas and running in masons he's like no nah, this is gonna be the real post-apocalypse as though so like Maze Runner and Hunger Games and uh just and all of those YA novels all exist. But the one thing this most closely resembles The Walking Dead does not. Like you're all trying to be The Walking Dead. So you've got The Walking Dead and A Quiet Place as made by the hap as made by the people who thought the happening was a good movie. So it's like the happening trying to be The Walking Dead and a quiet place, and sucking at everything. Ugh. Just, this really is bad. This is, and it's not even fun bad. This is lazy bad, where it's like, there's like, there's this distinct point where there's so much blood in this movie, but the one shot, the one group, the one scene where you could have had great blood effects, where uh, Sandra Bullock is attacking somebody who is assaulting her boat, uh, and trying to get her to remove her blindfold so she can witness the demons. And she, like, attacks him with a machete. And, like, no blood comes out. Like, the one spot where you could have really great blood effects. And you don't even include the blood? You just have him holding his neck with red ketchup on it after the fact. Oh, I've got ketchup. You, le- you leaked out my ketchup. You leaked out my ketchup. <laughs> so bad there's so much like did they run out of effects for that one shot for the blood what happened uh it cuts back like it cuts back and forth from the pre from the present and five years ago when it's, this has all started to go down and we witnessed kind of how sandra bullock came to be who she is in the present and um how she kind of like she refers to her kid oh my god boy and girl this is trying to crib off of the road. And yet this movie has the has the nerve to make fun of other post-apocalyptic movies when this thing is cribbing from everybody. <laughs> oh, oh, this is... Yeah, this is... Apparently this is even based on a book. Maybe the book is better and the filmmakers had no idea what they were doing to it. It's like a little bit of The Happening, a little bit of The Walking Dead, a little bit of A Quiet Place that's popular, a little bit of The Road, and yay, we made a movie! And it's like, it's just like all these parts kind of don't mesh at all and it's just like a... It's like when you do a... It's like when kids play with Play-Doh and they say, I made a thing, and it's literally just a mound of of multicolored Play-Doh that looks like they threw up. Uh, yeah, this is, this is not, I wouldn't even say watch this for the lols. This isn't even funny bad. This is lazy bad. This is boring bad more than anything else. And then, of course, the final twist is, uh, not without giving too much away, Something you could literally see coming from a mile away if you knew you know, if you knew what you look what to look for. It's like if you pay if you thought about it for any amount of time, like the one when it's finally revealed, it's like almost head slappingly like obvious. Like, damn it, 
Damn it. Damn it. Ugh. So yeah, it's it really is just a big a steaming pile. And unfortunately, it's not even a stinky pile, so it's not you can't even be like, "Oh, man, this is awful." Hey, you got to come here and smell this. It's awful. It's more like, you know, uh, there's a, I forgot to mention in Roma, there are points where the dog that stays in the garage poops all over the place. So she has to constantly clean it up. It's more like one of those dog turds. It's more like, oh man, I stepped in it. It's not even like aggressively bad. It's just more like an inconvenience. So yeah, Bird Box is one of the, is one of the dumber things to come from Netflix this year, but it's not even bad enough to be worth mentioning. Uh, so yeah, that about does it for all the reviews this year. So after a quick break, we'll come back and we'll get into those superlatives. What will be the best? What will be the, what will I, what will be my, what will end up my favorite? What will end up my least favorite? What will end up, what, what will end up on the blandest list? Stay tuned and find out. Did you know Ash's name in Japan is Satoshi after Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri? Did you know Roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the Roroni Kenshin manga? Did you know Godzilla's Japanese name is a portmanteau of gorilla and whale? If you want to learn about these subjects and more, listen to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture, available only on the Gumby Cat Network. start the list proper i did want to get into some honorable mentions so first up in the honorable mentions for the top seven favorite list we've got uh an itch- i wanted i'm kind of cheating i mainly kept it to seven for everything else but there were two movies that came out this year that i think are two perfect opposite sides of the coin from each other and those are love simon and boy erased love simon as I mentioned in the Boy Erased review, is sort of the idealized version of coming out today, where everyone accepts you mostly for who you are, and even though there may be some bullying, there may be some pushback, at least people, the people who know you and care about you accept you for who you are, and it's about and it's and it's basically the hopeful ideal for what LGBT people can look forward to when they're coming out. Boy Erased is the sad reality. That we live in where somebody will be forced into these sort of conversion camps because it's you're deemed, you know, broken and you need to be fixed. And the way to fix you is to essentially torture you. So the harsh realities and the things we need to change from boy erased, I think, kind of work as the opposite side of things from Lo- of, Lo- of Love, Simon, where that is ideally what we want to uh, work towards. We want to be Love, Simon. We need to get far away from from the kind of mentality that leads to Boy Erased. So both amazing movies, both uh, that dealing with um, being gay and coming to turn and and coming to terms with your sexuality, and just two one very tragic and and horribly uh, horrible you know horrible for a, to, to happen to somebody. The other, the much more idealized, not you know. Uh, you know, almost kitschy and twee 
uh, version of it, but one that we should look toward, look towards as the ideal. This is more what we want to happen. Less of Boy Erased. Uh, aside from that, uh, I also liked Crazy Rich Asians. This was on the list for a long time. Both this and Love, Simon were on the list for a long time. And Crazy Rich Asians is essentially your standard rom-com, but I loved the having this representation for Asian actors to have and to have the, such a predominantly well well acted Asian like this introduced me to Henry Golding and I thank this movie for that because he is a treasure to behold like I would have him as Bond you know if Idris Elba is too old you know this guy's looking pretty good but don't let me saying I mean have you seen him yeah he's got the voice too uh, <laughs> but yeah um, everybody about it in this movie is is great I love Michelle Yeoh. I I still have a mad crush on Michelle Yeoh. And I still think... And it's, you know, steeped enough in um, sort of Chinese-American uh, culture and, you know, especially, like, really well-to-do Chinese... Like, even though this didn't play well in China, this... I think the fact that this played well so well over here that proved that, once again, it doesn't matter... That the, there aren't white people in the movie, you can still have an amazing movie that people will want to see, because it's because hey, it's good at what it does, and that's what Crazy Rich Asians is. It's good at what it does. Uh, Widows, the latest from uh, Steve McQueen, uh, sadly didn't make it into the top seven, but still worth mentioning. It is a wonderful a heist movie, and I think it plays out really well. If you haven't had the chance to see it, please check it out. I still recommend that. Uh, Great cast, great, you know, once again, an amazing heist movie, I think. And the way it plays out, I think, works really well. Uh, Sadly, this wasn't, this got inched off the list as more movies came out towards the end of the year, but A Star is Born. I was actually uh, planning on trying to incorporate some of the songs from that, into uh, my end of the year list before I started asking around and asking what people thought I should do for my bumper music, and I ended up not going with it. But I still think the soundtrack for this is the best movie soundtrack of the year, uh, and and it's the most and it's the best and definitive version of A Star Is Born in my eyes. There's no reason to see any of the old versions. Just watch this one; you get the story, and I think it's perfectly done, especially for a first-time director. Uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. <laughs> this is going to be the, my son, number seven for the longest time. And it was inched out every, every month, every week, something, you know, the week, as the weeks went on, new stuff would come out. And I was like, nah, I got to inch it back, bud. But it managed to make it in there. And it, this, and Upgrade. I love Grindhouse movies that, that are really well done and prove that you don't need a, a hefty budget to make a solid movie. And... So sadly, these two weren't able to make it to the list proper. But you know, if we if I did a more top ten ish, I think they might have made it on there. Uh, but yeah, since I do top sevens, these are all kind of a miasmic right behind there. I don't know what I would consider the top ten uh, for my list. Uh, maybe oh, uh, not to mention a quiet place proof that once again you don't need a big budget if you've got a good concept and you manage to stick to it for the most part and you have great uh actors that know how to that that are able to perform uh well even without a lot of dialogue these people like um John Mulaney not John Mulaney he's um uh uh why I can't remember Jim from the office Jim from the office what's his name uh John uh something else uh John, 
Well, I can't remember his name. He's a... He's the director to Jim from The Office. What is his... John Krasinski. I don't know where... I think it's because he kind of has that same look. Like, they could be brothers. Uh, But, yeah. A Quiet Place is... Once again, another first-time director. John Krasinski. First-time directing. He he hits it right out of the park. Amazing stuff. So... Yeah, it, it, yeah. I would highly once again, and once again, proof that you don't need a big budget to make great movies. And as long as you've got good, you know, good filmmakers, good writers, uh, and know how to use your budget well to make to 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 make creative choices and present your idea well on the screen, you're golden. So yeah, those are the honorable mentions. So let's get into the list proper. That's just the way you make me feel. The Popcorn Junkies Top 7 Favorite Movies of 2018. Number 7. Number 7 is one that I didn't hear a lot of people talk about after the fact. And yet I consider it to be the most definitive entry in its franchise, and that is Creed 2. Creed 2 manages to take one of the cheesiest, silliest entries in the franchise and turn it up on its head and make something absolutely magnificent out of it. I still find Creed 2 to be the best of the Rocky franchise and really almost a culmination. Like, if it ended here fully, they didn't do any more follow-ups... This would be the perfect ending point for it. It does a great job of really humanizing and developing and making Ivan Drago into this three-dimensional character as his as well as his son, Victor Drago. And we get so much more development for um for for Adonis Creed and his relationship and how he does he wants he's still stuck in his father's shadow and he still wants to prove himself and this is his final chance to be like you know, here here's my chance to get rev- almost vengeance for my father and how that's not what he needs to do. He needs to do this for himself. He needs to prove to the world and to himself that this isn't about, you know, daddy issues or doing um or you know, doing things for people's benefit and for and for glory. It's about doing this for me. And I still think Creed Two is I still hold by the fact that Creed Two is the best Rocky movie. Like even better than the original Rocky and Rocky Two which which I think were which are still great and I Rocky and I liked it even more than Rocky 3 which was my favorite of the original Rocky franchise. Creed 2 is the definitive Rocky movie to watch. And unfortunately, it has to rely on so much that came before it. That's what makes it the best of the franchise. But as a, as as you know, for being built on all of the stuff that came before it, it is the best Rocky movie in my opinion. Period. End of story. Number six. Number six was going to be uh, number two for the longest time. And as more stuff came out, it's steadily kind of inch lower down the list, sadly. But it's still one of the best movies of the year. And that is Black Panther. You know, Ryan Coogler, the, the director of Creed, was busy making Black Panther. And both of those, both hit the sequel that he kind of produced and the movie he went off to direct ended up on my end of the year list. It's almost like Ryan Coogler is a good filmmaker or something. But yeah, Black Panther 
more than just like this is the thing. 2018 saw an immense spike in movies that represented people. A Quiet Place represented pe- uh, deaf actors and had a deaf main main actor in it. Uh, well, not named main actor, but main character actor. Uh, Love Simon and Boy Erased dealt with uh, had LGBT representation. Crazy Rich Asians had more Asian representation. Roma was you know was fully you know was a was a heavily praised Spanish Spanish language Mexican movie that you know with an all that had that provided more Hispanic representation, uh, and so much representation was happening this year, and a lot of that is going to end up on this list. So. You know, take that as you will. But I just, I just like seeing stories that I haven't seen before. And the great thing about representation is that you, see, everybody benefits from seeing these stories because, because there are people who would never know these stories, never heard, of, you know, never experienced these sorts of things without representation, without the diversity in the filmmaking industry. And Black Panther is just another byproduct of that. It's a phenomenal... I mean, once again, it's a blockbuster movie. It's a popcorn flick. It's a superhero movie. So it's not like... That's why it's not number one at the top. But it's definitely top-tier MCU, period. Like, Black Panther is an amazing superhero movie. And and Wakanda is just... It's a, it's no wonder that, that Black Americans are sort of... And Black nerds especially have sort of... Uh, embodied Wakanda as like their homeland. It's like their uh, it's like their unofficial homeland. Like they see themselves as citizens of Wakanda because it's such a wonderful. Um, it's not yeah you know, not perfect, but it's a it's a society where they are the dominant uh, racial you know race within it. They are the ones at the top for the most part, and they see it as a as as inspirational for them. And to have that for them to see to the point where we're getting a movie. Next month, uh, the the stupid uh, reinterpretation of what women want with Taraji P. Henson, but that's already referencing Black Panther. It is already within the zeitgeist. It is that iconic already, and everything about Black Panther is wonderful. Uh, it's not per. I won't, I, won't think it, I won't say it's perfect, but I love every aspect of it, and I think Ryan Coogler has proven that he's able to handle blockbusters just as well as he has handled independent film. So. Congratulations, guys. You did amazing. Number five. Speaking of amazing and superheroes, you know who is amazing? Spider-Man. You know what else is amazing? Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Sony Pictures had Spider-Man all these years. And all the and the best they could do in terms of... Um, their their interpretation of Spider-Man uh, was Spider-Man 2 in most people's eyes. That is kind of the accepted best Spider-Man movie. And a lot of people still consider it the best even when, after this came out. I argue that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is the superior Spider-Man movie. Because it is able to capture so many aspects of Spider-Man as a character. While also introducing so many of these new concepts that have sprung from the comics. The Spider-Verse as, an, as, a, as itself. These alternate realities w- where somebody had to take up the mantle of Spider-Man. Be it Gwen Stacy. Be it a anime girl with a robot. Be it a, a, a pig who, tur- who was turned from a spider. By a, by, by, his, by, his, by a woman who adopted him as... His as her nephew, 
Spider-Ham is insane. And yet it didn't come out before The Simpsons made a joke about it. That was from the 80s. It's crazy. Comics are weird, kids. But Into the Spider-Verse captures everything amazing about Spider-Man. All the great aspects of Spider-Man are within the story and tells the Spider-Man story just as you remember it. Every, no, everybody who would become Spider-Man follows the same paths, ultimately. And it's them using, that, using their powers responsibly and doing what they think is the best. And Miles, seeing Miles Morales brought to life it is amazing. Everything about this movie is amazing. And then a stinger at the end is the best th- best end of end of credit stinger we've ever gotten. Period. <laughs> Once again, period. I'm not arguing. This isn't up for debate. Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse's end credit end, end, end credit stinger is the best. There is no arguing. That is fact. So yeah, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. When Sony could do this with Spider-Man, the fact that they were wasting all of their time on Amazing Spider-Man and trying to create a Venom-verse is is just sad. Like Come on, just do more of this. You could do this and you're do- spending all your time, wasting all your time on that? This is why we can't take you seriously, Sony. More, less Venom, more Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, please. Number four. Hey. This will be the last of the superheroes, I promise, but I'm a nerd. I love me some superheroes, and... Yeah, it's all Marvel. Call me a fanboy, whatever. But MCU knocked it out of the park this year. Seriously, between Black Panther at the beginning of the year and then following up a couple months later with Infinity War, 10 years of work has paid off in spades. It has absolutely garnered them just supremacy in terms of superhero uh, media. There would never be anything else like this. We're experiencing pop culture history this year it really is phenomenal how well how this gamble like think about it think about it think about this 10 years ago uh the end of iron man you heard you saw sam jackson as nick fury talk about the avengers initiative could you have imagined that not only would that have paid off that we've gotten to the avengers it paid off the end stinger of that teasing thanos and finally, six years after the Avengers, Thanos' plan came to fruition. And next year, we're going to see the culmination of everything. All of the storylines from the first three phases are going to culminate next year in a spectacular fashion. And it is going to be, like, once again, they left us with a, te- with a hang- you know, hanging for the next chapter. That, these, these guys know what they're doing. These guys know what they're doing, and Avengers Infinity War, and like there are people who still can't watch Avengers Infinity War. Is that emotionally moving to them? That's the sign of great blockbuster filmmaking, that you can make people feel these kinds of emotions that are normally slated for high-end drama, for things that are much more considered much more respectable uh, movies. And here you've got a popcorn movie making people just burst into tears thinking about because it's affected them so personally that there you have it this is why the mcu is superior to the dceu even though the dc characters could be better warner brothers complete has completely botched it and i'm not the only one who's saying that it's it's very clear to see that marvel has dominated movies 
if nowhere else, they've dominated the movie sphere. So yeah, Infinity War is the best of the superhero movies that I saw this year, just in terms of its overall quality. As much as I love, and and I, I think, the, and I think what's going to be interesting to see how they follow it up with Endgame next year. That's going to be one I'm looking forward to. But yeah, for the superheroes, Infinity War is the best I saw this year. But all of them are all, but everything is, everything from the top seven up is five stars. I think there's some four and a half stars in the honorable mentions, but everything on this list is five stars for the most part. I I cannot recommend these enough. So yeah, Infinity War. Best superhero movie to come out last year. Number three. If you've been following me for a while, you've noticed that I am a bit of a nerd. So, like, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, topped last year's list. And I think, uh, when was 2016? Let me pull that up. But, yeah, like, I remember when I first started making reviews... Uh, when I did, when I started doing end of the year lists, um, okay, blended, here we go. Yeah. Civil War topped 2016, uh, Star Wars topped 2017. Um, I'm a, I'm a nerd. So yeah, like Avengers was my number one movie 2012. I think the only time that a non nerdy property topped my end of the year list was 2013 when it was... 12 Years a Slave, just because that was such an iconic moment in cinema that I couldn't have, I couldn't place that any lower. But for the most part, a lot of my top tens have been, and top, top, a lot of my top 10 of the year, favorite, li- fa- favorite movies of the year are nerdy. Cause are, are, you know, they're pop culture, blockbuster nerd stuff. Cause that's who I am. But this year, nah, 2018 stepped up their game. And this year, uh, the top three are all, uh, you know, normal, uh, re- you know, stuff that two of them are dramas. And number three is a documentary. Don't see a lot of documentaries on my list. Sadly, I don't watch a lot of them. But, yeah, number three is the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor. There's a lot of movies that exemplify 2018. Um, you know, a lot of people will say... Sorry to Bother You, or The Hate You Give, or a lot, you know, there are a lot of movies that will exemplify the feeling of 2018. I think one, the one movie that, and I, and I, you know, when I was make, finalizing the list, I was debating what I, my thoughts on these sorts of things, and I think, ultimately, what it came down to was, the movie we needed in 2018 was Won't You Be My Neighbor. I think of all years... To need a movie about Fred Rogers. We needed the 2018. 2016, 2017 have been... Uh, that's all kind of culturally and globally. We've been seeing such horrible stuff going on in the last couple of years. That sometimes you need to be reminded... Of the kind of goodness you see in a man like Fred Rogers. They shy, they kind of shy away from the fact that he was a bit... He's not as accepting as he could have been towards homosexuality because he was a minister and because he was, you know, he was very religious. At the same time, his the friend of his, uh, the the policeman uh, on the show, uh, I forget his last name, officer or something, but the actor wa- was gay and he was in the closet for years. But I don't think he, he during the movie he never made it seem like Fred was the one who was against him. He thought Fred hated him for who he was. 
Fred always seemed to accept him for who he was. He just knew that they couldn't tackle that just yet. Society wasn't ready for that. At least that's what I got. I gleaned from it. I, otherwise, he wouldn't. I, I would assume that he would absolutely call out Fred Rogers if he thought that Fred was being, you know, was the kind of guy who thought he was an abomination for being gay. But I got the feeling that that's not who Fred was. I mean, he was a, you know, he's a very religious man, but he was, he kind of tapped into the mindset of children better than a lot of people. Most people who, you know, views children as sort of like, you know, very, you know, simple things that can be commodified and sold to. Fred hated that. Fred concerned children, was always concerned with the well-being of children because he knew that those were the seeds to sow for the future. And that's why he didn't want something to sell kids cereal. He didn't want something to sell kids toys. He didn't want a toy line. He didn't want anything like that. He wanted kids to understand the world and to have a better, and to be able to, and that's the other thing too. Freddie, Freddie Boy was a bleeding heart liberal for all intents and purposes, you know? <laughs> like his first episode and for those who didn't grow up with Fred Rogers and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, you may not know this. The first episode was about the freaking Vietnam War. It was an allegory for the Vietnam War and how it's a bad and how it's a bad thing and and we shouldn't be there. He was he was breaking down the terribleness of the Vietnam War for kids to understand. And he did it so well. And there is so he never, he never shied away. He never like pulled back. The only thing he never tackled was homosexuality and gender identity, anything of that nature, because it wasn't as prevalent. The main prevalence in that time period was race, and he ta- and he tackled that head on. He brought in a guy in the same like they don't, they show you in an era where they were using lye and bleach to kick to to just absolutely torture black kids who who tried to swim in a public swimming pool that they deem that, that you know that were that was deemed whites only he washed his feet as Christ did with a black man and he said won't you sit down next to me and sh- and wa- and sit your feet in the in the cold water since it's such a hot day he considered this man his brother and he la- and he told him it's a hot day sit down and soak your feet in the same water with me because you are my neighbor and because you were, and that's the thing. That's why I never get the feeling that Fred Rogers was, as much as he was a Christian man, I get the feeling that he was never a hateful man. I would never see him in this day and age be the kind of be the kind of guy to side with the likes of Jerry Falwell or uh, you know any of those kinds of super right wing guys. I would see him more along the lines of um, kind of person who would be like, well, that's who you are. You know, I, I don't, you know, he, th- he may, he may think certain things about sexuality, but he knows that this person is his neighbor. He knows that this person deserves love. He knows that this person deserves to be treated as a human and that you no matter what, whatever the, whatever the, you know, cir- circumstances are to that people should be treated with love. And he is, that's why there's people, people have a sort of, what would Rogers do? Be it Steve? Or Fred, what would the two Rogers do? Be like, be somebody that those two would admire. And I think that's the key that a lot of people seem to forget is that when it comes down to it, 
We should all be a little bit more like Fred. Fred was a good per- Fred was good people. He may not have been like once again. I can't speak to his uh, you know views or actions towards homosexuals. Like the movie, the worst the movie t- tackled was he told his friend to stay in the closet, which could have just as easily been for his own safety. And it was kind of for ratings. He knew that he would lose his show if he tried to embrace homosexuality at that in that age. But nowadays, I don't know. I think the way society is, I would I could see Fred absolutely allow for homosexuals to be on his show. I, I would be shocked if he didn't. Because I, that doesn't sound like Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers was always the kind of guy... Like, even when it came down to parodies, he didn't like mean-spirited parodies. But if somebody was making a joke that he that was in the same the spirit of the show, he, 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 he could take it... You know, he could take a hit. He didn't mind the joke when it was, when it was done in... When it was done in sort of lighthearted spirit... You know, lighthearted love and not mean-spirited sort of... You know, <laughs> cynical take on his what he was trying to do because he took his took what he did very seriously. So yeah, when it comes down to it, Fred Rogers is good people, and you know we should all you know, we should all always strive to be a little to be welcome in Mister Rogers' neighborhood. And this movie reminded me of that. Number two. Hey. All right. The last two are, once again, tying into our theme of diversity and you know, representation in media. This one was a first-time movie again, much like A Star is Born, much like A Quiet Place. This one, though, is from a guy who is more of an artist, like a visual artist and a musician. This is Sorry to Bother You, which is a wild, out-there sort of breaking down of society um it's not per i i i do you know and i will i will say it's not wholly perfect if you want a good um uh uh piece about uh sorry to bother you and especially it's it's uh you know how it writes its main female character i suggest you go check out uh fishnet cinema i believe is where it's posted uh jordan searles did an amazing piece on that aspect of the movie but as it is, but as a but as a movie that kind of tackles uh, coding and code switching uh, for 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 black people, this kind of hits the nail on the head for a lot of it. Like, think if for those who don't know, um, and I'm not the one, the best person to talk about. I'm just relating what other people have mentioned. But for a, a lot of members of the black, and not only black men, but gay commu- you know, the gay community has code switching. The you know various. Um, you know, basically any cultural uh, minority has to try and differentiate themselves between, may have to try and differentiate themselves from their own home culture to, to, you know, mainstream white culture. And both movies actually deal with that directly. And for Sorry to Bother You, it's a much more fantastical take where these black actors will have literal white voices speaking through them. While it's breaking down so many, uh, not just, and that's the thing, it's not just about black culture, but about corporate culture and how corporations are, are the kind of 
weird, sinister, behind-the-scenes stuff goes on with them. Like, there's, like, an evil Walmart-Amazon conglomerate that goes on in the back of the movie. As you follow the way it plays out, it's like, oh, oh, yeah. Like, it's it goes to a hyperbolic degree, but you clearly could see the through line for this. And it is bananas to watch play out. There isn't, a, there isn't anything else like Sorry to Bother You. And I love movies like that. I love movies that try to be something unique and swing for the fences. They try to be something that you haven't seen before. Even if it doesn't fully work, at least it's trying. And it's weird and it's out there. And it's very much made by somebody with an artist's mindset. And I love that for it. It was, it was going to be my number one movie for the longest time. But what is my number one movie? Let's get into that, shall we? That's just the way you make me feel. Number one. You've heard me talk about diversity and uh, representation on my list. You've heard me mention certain movies. And in Sorry to Bother You, I mentioned code switching. I think that kind of gave it away for people who have been following this podcast. My number one movie of the year is The Hate You Give. Now, my number one favorite movie comes down to the fact that what, how you know depends on how I'm feeling for that year. For a lot of times, I prefer like escapist, blockbuster entertainment stuff, superheroes, Star Wars, etc. When it comes down to things like Twelve Years a Slave, that topped my end of the year list because that was the movie I needed to see. That was the kind of movie I needed to see play out because. That was a movie you could not... That that was a story that deserved to be told. The Hate You Give is one of those movies that I think perfectly encapsulates the, the cultural zeitgeist in 2018. It's a movie that deals directly with black issues. It deals directly with, like I mentioned, code switching. A girl has to, de- has to code switch between her white school and her black neighborhood. And... What happens when those neighbor when those two things start to become at odds? Who is she? If she is between if she is if she has two personalities, who is the real her? And what happens when the society you, you that you purportedly support starts to reveal itself to be against you? When do you stand up and make your voice heard? And are you able to deal with the repercussions? And how, you know, how, how much do you give in to your righteous anger before you give in to hate? When does anger become hate? And how do you act in ang- How do you deal with your anger without giving in to your hate? The title of the book that it is based on and the movie itself comes from a comes from the Tupac song, as I mentioned in the review. The Hate You Give, and it's it, it's his it's his um acronym for Thug Life. The Hate You Give, Little Infants, 
uh, F's everybody. You know, F words everybody. And he and Tupac nailed that right on the head. And this movie encapsulates that mantra. The hate that you sh- the hate that you give and that you show and that you and that you act out in front of and and give towards little kids, little infants F's everybody. In the same way that Mr. Rogers neighborhood was always about te- t- introducing kids to the realities of the you know to the harsh reality of the world while still acknowledging that they are people that they have emotions and that they deserve love and that they deserve to be heard Tupac I'm comparing Fred Rogers to Tupac this is 2018 in a nutshell everybody but yeah Tupac speaks the same truth and the same and the same truth is the hate that you know that you need in order to in order to improve slowly culturally uh society as a whole kids need to be shown love kids need to be shown that giving into hate isn't the answer the hate you give little infants f's everybody and much like mr rogers is a reminder that we should all be welcoming and treat everyone as our neighbor. We should always remember to show people love before we show them hate. Doesn't even to say that, and that's once again, not to say that anger isn't righteous, that anger isn't unwarranted. You can be angry, but give, but allowing for that anger to fester into hate doesn't solve the problem. You can't let that anger fester into hate. It needs to. It needs to be dealt. It needs to be tackled with love. So, yeah, you can be righteously angry, but always come from a place of love. And that's the key. So, those were. I think that's what resonated me the most with uh, 2018 from these movies. Ultimately, what it comes down to is, we need more love in the world. And unfortunately, the only place that really starts with is with you. So, I'm doing my best. I really want to show people love. But that doesn't mean I can't get angry. Which is what leads into my bottom seven of the year. So before we get into that, let's dig into some dishonorable mentions. Yeah, let's face it. People like anger and, you know, you know that kind of passionate vitriol that comes from pulling down, you know, kind of taking down something bad than they do praising something good. Uh, but, but you know, sometimes it's just fun to knock a bad, th- a bad movie. So let's look into some dishonorable mentions from me. Um, I, I, the, the uh, other two lists all had seven honorable mentions. So for the dishonorable mentions of my least favorite list, we've got Mile 22. Mark Wahlberg is is a terrible actor, and the fact that you would put him over uh, a, a wonderful martial artist like uh, what is his name? It's a guy from the Raid. Uh, let me pull up the Raid. That'll be the first thing that comes up. Iko Uwais. Uh He is such a wonderful martial artist, and you basically dumped him behind. 
freaking Marky Mark, who's just base, who's just basically there to talk about how America is the greatest country in the world, and we gotta fight the terrorists, and it, and, and we gotta do the right thing, everybody, in this fictional Indonesian country. Indonesian country in this fictional Indonesian city we don't know where we are I'm Maki Mark I'm the toughest guy there is I'm here to bring down my righteous fury and start a franchise from this stupid movie that everybody hated but we still sequel baited it because we figured we get a huge surge and even though it was a piece of crap movie we still got enough to start a franchise I'm Maki Mark everybody I don't care if I'm doing a bad Marky Mark impression. Screw him. I don't care about it. Like, seriously, screw him. Dude's a tool. Anyway, uh, next up. Well, it's probably not going to be on a lot of people's list, but just hit me in the wrong way. Sony Pictures Peter Rabbit. Here's the thing. I actually enjoyed the Peter Rabbit books growing up. I liked the animated shorts that would come out uh, that they that they did for television. I think they're really good kids books i think you could easily do a film about the characters sony pictures basically made alvin and the chipmunks with british accents this is literally alvin and the chipmunks with british accents why were you not why would you not tolerate alvin and the chipmunks but think this is adorable are you really are is everybody just those chicks from love actually that think, oh, it has a British accent. there's a british accent it must be classy it's obviously cuter no one thing being exposed to a lot of British media has done for me is exposed to the fact that British accents are just that, accents. As long as, it, if it's trash, it's trash. Don't be confused by an accent. Ugh, Peter Rabbit's garbage. Ugh. Anyway, uh, yeah, you won't find, it, once again, it treats the source material like Alvin of the tre- Chipmunks treated it. And Alvin of the Chipmunks is way less of a cool story than Peter, the books of Peter Rabbit and uh, yeah, uh, Potter and Miss Potter. What, what's her name? Uh, what is her name? I've completely forgotten. Beatrix Potter. Yeah, my mind is all over the place tonight. Beatrix Potter. Her books are amazing and could easily may, be made into their own movie. And they started off perfectly fine. If this was just about just trying to recreate the stories of Beatrix Potter, this would have been fine. Sam Neill played uh, Mr. McGregor, Farmer McGregor. And then all of a sudden, he's out of the picture and we've got the Alvin of the Chipmunks movie, all of a sudden. What the hell is this? Yeah, Peter Rabbit is trash. I have no qualms with saying that. You know what's weird? Fifty Shades of Grey topped my least favorite of the year for 2015. Every, every year following that, that a Fifty Shades movie came out. I just, they were way worse movies. Even though the movies were all garbage... I just found them ultimately boring. I think that initial shock of this is the worst thing I've ever seen is just the fact that this is the first time I'm seeing it play out. And even though each subsequent entry in the franchise is worse than the previous one, I'm not even offended at this point. Because it's hard to get offended at somebody who's clearly just a hot mess. It's like, I can't get be mad at you. You're not worth being mad at. You're just sad so yeah 50 shades freed is the final final nail in the coffin for the franchise thankfully we can be done with it this is just a this is just a a hot mess all all around just man just can't believe that was a thing 
following that, we've got The Nun. The Nun was absolutely another spinoff of the Conjuring franchise. Probably trying to spin off onto another spinoff because it's successful. People watch this crap. I don't get, I don't get, I don't get why things become popular. Sometimes you can't, you, sometimes you just can't predict what becomes popular. You never know what becomes truly popular because some things will just hit people in the right way and it doesn't have to be good. That's the worst part is that popularity has never been about quality. It has always been about what hits people the right away. And a stupid horror movie will get will get people in at least in the door. It doesn't even matter if it's good. It doesn't matter if they regret their money. They spent it. It's over. And we're all paying the price. So yeah. Expect the next five spinoffs of The Conjuring to come out pretty soon from Blumhouse. Who's going to show up again on this list? That's the way, you know. Don't, you know, so paid, so, uh, not, not on the list proper, sadly, but they are going to show up again. Actually, you know what? Screw it. Let's talk about them. Blumhouse's Truth or Dare. This is, this is, this isn't even fun bad. This is just the dumbest thing I've ever seen from horror this year. It is absolutely atrocious. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tr- Blumhouse's Truth or Dare, it feels like a parody trailer that got made into a full movie. This does not. What? Wh- who made this? Who? Whose idea was this? Why did it? Why did the? Why was it greenlit? Why? Why does this exist? And unfortunately, it made enough money to warrant itself because Blumhouse does things so cheaply. It doesn't matter if it's good because it'll always make its money because people love crappy horror. Happy Death Day to You is coming out in February, so I got that to look forward to. Thanks, Blumhouse. Anytime I think you're you're on the up and up and you've got something good on your hands, you just pump out the garbage. You dump the sewage out with everything else. Ugh. Anyway. You, uh, the other two things on my honorable mentions, we've got Eli Roth's Death Wish remake, which Death Wish was, could have easily been done for a remake. Enough time has changed that you could easily tap into the same sort of conservative mindset of good guy with a gun, which is essentially where the movie comes from. It is the conservative mentality of the good guy with a gun. Anytime a conservative talks about that, they are picturing in their head, Charles Bronson and death wish specifically one of the really crappy sequels. Now you give that to Eli Roth, who is a gore, a super hardcore gory director. You let him turn it into a super splatterific, just doesn't care about your politics, makes it into just a, just blood and guts and viscera everywhere. You could have something there. You could have it be a full-on exploitation movie in the same vein as those sequels. Or you could make one of the most boring movies I've ever seen. In the same year that Eli Roth made a decent kids movie, he released one of the most boring Waste of my time. But on top of that, it is all the same terrible politics that that came from that initial movie. But done lazily and without any passion by anybody involved. This feels like something that was done out of obligation. Like your mom telling you to go say hi to your aunts at dinner. Or like family dinner. <sighs> I'm, not, I'm only here because I have to be. I don't care. So yeah. Death Wish was a complete waste of time, 
And on top of that, it was horrible. You know, it has the horrible baggage of the politics that goes into it. It couldn't even be fun. I could I could ignore the bad politics if it was at least fun. Nah, it just decided to waste my damn time. And then finally, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Worst entry in the entire franchise. Worse than The Lost World, I would, I argue. I would argue. Because this is all the worst parts of The Lost World, plus all of the inane, terrible writing of Colin Trevorrow. Colin Trevorrow is a, is a, is a, is a madman. He, everything about Jurassic World that I didn't like has clearly come from him because it's him and his writing partner, partner that made this movie. They're the ones that wrote the script for the Fallen Kingdom. They're the ones that everything that was bad about the first Jurassic World has shown up and is dominated in this one. And it's proven that Colin Trevorrow is a terrible writer. He just does not know good screenwriting. I don't know what, maybe, maybe, maybe he does. I've yet, I don't, I didn't see, um, I didn't see uh, Safety Not Guaranteed. I can't guarantee if that was a good film or not. But Colin Trevorrow, in charge of the Jurassic Park franchise, has delivered nothing but garbage. But because there's dinosaurs in it, people want to go see it. Doesn't matter that there's dinosaurs in it, it's still garbage. And I chastise garbage movies, whether there are dinosaurs in them or not. And I love me some dinosaurs, but... Bad movie with dinosaurs is still a bad movie. There's just dinosaurs. I can watch a good movie with dinosaurs. It's not like dinosaurs are so sparse in our media that I can't go watch a good movie with dinosaurs. I could watch a documentary with CGI dinosaurs and get better and get a better story than what I got from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. It is such an atrocious mess. And sadly, I would hope that there's nowhere to go further down than this, but... We'll see. If Colin Trevorrow's left in charge, and clearly he's making enough money that it's fa- that he probably will be, we'll see how low this this train can Ravy train can ride before people finally realize it's 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 just leading us into a festering sewage dump. Uh. So, with the dishonorable mentions out of the way, let's get into the list proper. Look what I got. Look the popcorn junkies. Bottom seven least favorite movies of 2018. Number seven. Hi, number seven brings back Maki Mak. Could you guess that? Did you realize that I don't think Maki Mak's a good actor? Well, what if we adopted a bunch of Hispanic kids? You think that would make up for the fact that he put a, put a Vietnamese man in the hospital? You think that would happen? You think that would be a good thing? Hey, he, he adopted a little girl from, from, the, from Transformers 5. And her two, little, her two little precocious brats. It's all about family here. It's a family picture. Isn't that great? Doesn't that make up for the fact that I'm a horrible piece of garbage? Huh? God. This movie made me question if Rose Byrne was funny. I like Rose Byrne, even in Neighbors, even though she wasn't the best. I still liked her. This movie started to question whether or not I liked Rose Byrne. That's how bad this is. And I I think people are once again holding on to the fact that, oh, it's got a wholesome message. It's about family. It's about loving people, even though you're not technically related. Aw, isn't that sweet? 
I could get that same message from a much better movie. This is... It's almost like they for completely forget the first act of this is about how horrible Rose Byrne and Marky Mark are for trying to... They're like, hey, let's adopt some kids. Won't that make us good people? Hey, we're not good people. We're assholes. We're a bunch of assholes. So what if we adopt... But now that we're starting to adopt some kids, maybe we'll become good people. Nope, we're still a bunch of assholes. It's just now we adopted some kids and we're starting to treat them like decent human beings. Doesn't change the fact that we're still a bunch of assholes. I'm Marky Mark. I don't want you to call me that anymore because I want to be taken seriously. Even though people still forget that I punched a Vietnamese man so hard I put him in the hospital. I nearly killed the man. I'm still a racist piece of human garbage. It's no wonder Mel Gibson played my dad. By the way, that's the same person who from from the Daddy's Daddy's Home franchise who made this. Isn't it any wonder? Isn't it any wonder that I didn't like this? Daddy's Home is garbage, and now he's spun off into another thing with Marky Mark, and it's also garbage. But because it's about adoption, and it features these cute kids, everyone gives it a pass. I don't. I can watch precocious little kid stuff, no problem. I can get through kid stuff. This isn't this is this is just bad. This is just absolutely bad. And this is made by people who are complete assholes but think because they donate to charity that they're somehow good people. No, you nah, nah, nah. You get, you spent a half hour of this movie being it being absolute colossal pieces of garbage, and I'm not gonna forget that. So nah, you don't get a pass for being nice to a bunch of kids. Nah, you don't get that. You're still assholes, your movie's garbage. I don't care if you've got a good message. Plenty of good messages have come from better movies. Your movie's just garbage. Number six. Number six. Venom. 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 <laughs> God, Eminem. He just he said who who allowed Eminem to to make this theme song for this movie sound like he's rubbing up a motorcycle? Venom, 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 venom. <laughs> it's perfectly fitting that a terrible song came from a terrible movie. I've got a good friend of mine who's on actual who's on actual uh, comedy shows on TV. He got paid, you know, he is a paid writer for Adam Ruins Everything. He's got a, he's part of the comedy trip that has its own Comedy Central show. He's a genuinely hilarious guy. Go check out, by the way, he also has a podcast. Go check out Black Man Can't Jump in Hollywood. Um, shout out to James the Third. I'm sorry that two of your favorite movies are on my worst of the year list. <laughs> I'm sorry, my dude. I love you. I love you. I just can't. I just can't. I just can't. I, I, I just can't. He sits in a freaking lobster tank and Venom's like, I'm kind of a loser on my home planet. <laughs> cool Venom effects don't make up for the fact that the story is garbage. The story is absolutely terrible. They try to, alter, they try to cut straight to Venom being the anti-hero. We completely missed the point of what's cool about Venom. I was telling that my my nephew likes Venom, so he you know clearly James is not alone in this. There are pl- plenty of people who like Venom. Venom, 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 Venom. I can't not think that Eminem has ruined this movie's name for me. He's probably ruined the character for me, honestly, because all I can think is, oh hey, it's Venom, 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 Venom. 
Oh, Jesus. Uh, got me doing this for the rest of the review. Christ. Uh, point is, Tom, Tom Hardy could have been a perfect Eddie Brock. The Venom effects would have been great. I think that's the worst part is that this had the potential to be good. If you had just waited for freaking Spider-Man to make this make sense. Venom does not make s- Think of it this way. There's a character in DC Comics named Bizarro. He is directly based on the fact that he is the opposite of Superman. This is making a Bizarro movie without mentioning Superman once. He has a backwards ass on his chest, has all of these superpowers that are clearly derived from Superman, yet you never mention the fact that he's Superman! He's based around Superman! He's a villain for Superman. Just, just Sony. And unfortunately, this made so much money, the Venomverse, the Venom, Venom, Venomverse is most likely happening. I, this didn't make nearly as much money as Into the Spider-Verse. Why would you people do this? Into the Spider-Verse was the far superior product. But hey, you got your Venom, 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 Venom. Oh, by the way, the mid-credit stinger teasing the, the, the introduction of another symbiote character. Symbiote. Symbiote. It's a symbiote. Symbiote. Symbiote, 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 symbiote. We've said this in media since the 90s when Venom was introduced. It's symbiote. It's, per- it's symbiotic. It's symbiotic relationship. It's a term in actual science. It's a symbiote. Symbiote. Not a symbiote. What are you, what are you trying to... What, do you have Siri read it out to you? Venom is, ba- Venom is a character based on a symbiote. Who talks like... Maybe that's why people liked it. It's such a stupid, stupid, terrible movie that they thought of it as a comedy. That's the only thing I could think because I cannot find it. The only thing good, whatever good qualities there were for Tom Hardy and for the Venom outfit, the Venom, 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 Venom outfit, they're completely wasted on just atrocious dot like a turd in the wind. You can't, you, you can't get over that. There is no making up for that line alone. That line alone ruins your movie. Yeah. So yeah. Venom, 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 Venom. Number six least favorite movie of the year. Number five. Number five is where we start to get pretty atrocious in terms of the of the message being sent, and that is I feel pretty. This could work. Once again, this could clearly work. You have a, the sort of subversion of the rom-com trope where it's about the woman who sees herself as the attractive woman, but she's still clearly in her normal body. But it's, uh, it's about her gaining the confidence of somebody who is attractive. And it's about her using that confidence to become a better person. This is one of the worst subversions of rom-com tropes I've ever seen. We'll see if... This isn't a high bar for... Isn't it romantic to cross? We'll see if it's even able to do that next year. But I've got... I think I feel pretty as tainted the waters for rom-com subversions. Because just everything about this is anti-woman. It's really anti-woman, period. Because, you know... Like, here's the thing. This could easily be about how I... 
a not as not quite as attractive girl starts to feel attraction within herself and that's the, that's clearly the goal the goal is to find beauty within and become a better person except amy schumer is a, just a colossal piece of garbage she's just a, a horrible human being in this movie there is no reason for her to be the hero she is the villain she is the villain and the whole climax the entire climax of this movie is her stealing a job from a, from another woman who has been nothing but... I'm already getting f- furious thinking about it. During the course of this movie, Amy Schumer runs into a very attractive woman in at, at uh, Soul Cycle, And she is nothing but nice to her. She's like, oh, you know, she's like, hey. You know, she's just like the nicest person. She is literally the nicest person. And Amy Schumer's like, bitch. All, because the girl is attractive. The woman is attractive, so Amy Schumer treats her like crap. And when this girl, who barely knows Amy Schumer, is breaking down in tears, crying, because she got dumped by, a boy, by her boyfriend, Amy Schumer's like, you need to shut up, girl. You're hot. You don't get to cry. I want to strangle you because you're hot. You don't get to be sad. I want to punch you in the face right now. You don't get to be sad because you're hot? What are you, 13? Oh my god, pretty people can't have feelings. Excuse me? Excuse me. Like, that would be one thing. It would be one thing if this girl had the exact same personality as Amy Schumer did, where she's a colossal asshole and she treats Amy Schumer like crap the entire movie. This girl is the sweetest human being. And Amy Schumer not only tells her she shouldn't be sad because she's hot, she's straight. This woman is vying for a modeling gig. She wants to be a model for, for a makeup line. She thinks it'll be a great gig for her. Amy Schumer steals that gig from her and says it has to be me because it's a it's a target brand. So we need to show regular people in it. We can't have pretty people. Pretty people don't shop at Target. I'm still here. I'm just I'm trying to prevent. I'm trying to prevent a brain aneurysm from my sheer rage at that mindset. Just, just screw you. Like, even if the joke was that this is the villain, she is played like the protagonist of a rom-com. She is played as our hero, and she is a terrible human being. And the point of the movie, if that's the if that's your goal, is to portray her as a terrible human being, the goal of the movie should be to realize she's a terrible human being and get her comeuppance. That's how karma works. For her to be treated as the hero when she is clearly a human dumpster, that is terrible writing. You are terrible. This movie is terrible. Everything about it is all, it's not only terrible to watch, it has some of the worst messages being sent from it. Whatever good about... Like, it clearly wanted to be like, oh, ugly girls, you should, you should have, you should feel good about yourselves. Attractiveness doesn't come from outward aesthetics, it comes from being yourself. Like, if you wanted to subvert that, 
you 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 could have just had Amy Schumer maintain being an asshole, and everyone's like, oh no, oh no, we we don't mind, we don't think you're ugly, we just think you're an asshole, and it's like. Make that the joke. Make the joke that everybody hates her, not because she's ugly, but because she's a human piece of sh- just. I I I I hate I hate this movie. I genuinely hate it. I, I like that's the thing. I don't hate rom coms as a, as a like as a rule. I don't outwardly hate rom coms. There are plenty of solid rom-com. I love The Big Sick. The Big Sick is funny. The Big Sick is romantic. Genuinely romantic. Not toxic. This is something... You want to talk about toxicity in rom-coms? This is one of the most toxic rom-coms I've ever seen. And I think, thankfully, most of the most audience are like, Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. Bye. See ya. Don't care. Bye. See ya. We're gone. I'm gone. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm gone. Bye. No, we're, we're gone. We're going. Bye. I think that's what audiences had with this movie. Because I did not hear good things about it, thankfully. There, there may have been some people who liked it. Who you know found it funny because they like Amy Schumer and they think she's funny. I personally would have preferred A.D. Bryant in this role, honestly. She just plays one of the best friends. I think she's... She's leagues funnier than Amy Schumer, personally. And I think she deserves better. I think she should be the lead of a rom-com. Why isn't she the lead in Isn't It Romantic? Wouldn't A.D. Bryant be way better than Rebel Wilson? Rebel Wilson's another one who I don't think is that funny to begin with. So why isn't there someone like A.D. Bryant or like um, like um, Leslie Jones? Why isn't Leslie Jones in that? Leslie Jones is like the non-traditional uh, aesthetic. They should easily play that role. Plus, you'd have Leslie Jones in it. Wouldn't that be great? Like, I don't there are way better comedian, comedians who were uh, non-traditional body types that could play these roles. But for some reason, people like Rebel Wilson and Amy Schumer. Uh, Amy Schumer seems to have stepped back from the spotlight a bit to, you know, have a kid and start raising that and become more involved in other stuff. Which means, hey, good for her. Honestly, if it's less crap like this, then I'm, then I'm glad. Thank you. Thank you. Number four. This is one that is absolutely despicable to be released at this point in time. This movie was basically released out of spite and in order to try and glean any semblance of money back from it. For those who aren't familiar, uh, the movie is called London Fields. It is a movie that was made two years ago, about three years ago, uh, 2015, three years ago. It was set for 2015 release and the director... Are, are sued, set you know, filed a lawsuit against the producers for taking away Final Cut from him, and they said, "Well, you went off to make a music video, so you don't get Final Cut. You broke a contract." And while while that lawsuit was in court, they also filed a lawsuit against Amber Heard for not for not praising this movie while on a press junket, and she countersued for. For withheld wages. So yeah. Everybody. The producers of this movie are trash. And they kept this movie from being released. Because they were dicks. The producers of this movie were were dicks. And you know what they kept back? A boring noir film. This movie was three years belated. Because of lawsuits. And all we got out of it was a terrible noir film. You know what the worst part is? It is so... 
so, so much squickier when they show Amber Heard and Johnny Depp together on screen. Because this was made while they were together. And the knowledge of what happened in their relationship makes watching them make out and be in, and be in a romantic, you know, entanglement that much icky to watch. And the fact that she was so open about that and to have her and to basically do this to her because she's about to be in a much bigger and honestly better movie with Aquaman and because Johnny Depp is for some godforsaken reason in the Harry Potter franchise, they thought they could glean off some money from these better from these actors being in much honestly better movies. Like that's the thing. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is a terrible, is the worst of the Harry Potter franchise. Even that couldn't make my bottom of the year list, sadly. It, there's just so much worse than that. And yet, I would much sooner watch Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which is an atrocious, uh, unforgivable movie, way more than I will watch London Fields. Because at least, at least there are some redeeming aspects of Crimes of Grindelwald. There is nothing redeeming about this movie. It was basically done out of pure greed and spite. It was the only reason this was released in theaters. And thankfully it was dumped quickly afterwards. Because there was no nobody who wanted to see this. It was ruined by the producers. And everything about this is a just a just a terrible movie. Maybe there was a good movie in the editing process for this. Maybe the director did have a good movie that he intended to make. And the producers just absolutely ruined it. But for whatever the case, this movie sucks. And it's absolutely sickening that the producers would try to tie in to, to the act, two of the actors who were, had a, one, one of the most public falling outs ever and the revelation of just how, uh, how much of a, just a despicable human being the one is and how we treated the other. And the fact that you would try to capitalize on that in any regard makes you just awful. Great Johnny Depp was cut out of most of the marketing, so it wasn't so much about him. It was more about Amber Heard, because she's in a she's gonna be in a superhero movie. We need to make money off of that. Hey, here's this piece of crap we made three years ago that only just now was able to be released. And even then, nobody wanted to see it. Nobody went to see it. It bombed horribly. And good, because it's garbage. There may have been a good movie in there somewhere. But if you want to fu- if you want to have some fun, go watch go check out my go back through my Twitter, search for the hashtags Munchalong and La- and London Fields. You can see me break down every terrible point of this movie as I watch it cuz there was nobody else in that theater and good reason and for good reason. Thank you. Next, next, thank you. Number 3. This is the last of the poli- this is the last of the movies that isn't that is apolitical. I mean, I feel pretty is somewhat political, uh, and London Fields somewhat has some uh, aspects of like you know what we would call SJW mindset into it because I do I do like to think of those kinds of things when I when it comes to my media and the media I consume. I like to be critical of those sorts of things, and this is the last this if this outside of my own personal beliefs. My own personal politics being in, being uh, tied to my thoughts of the movie. This is the last one bef- that's apolitical. Because this is just an inexcusable movie. And that is Show Dogs. Somebody said to themselves, Here's the guy who made Beverly Hills Chihuahua, The Smurfs, and Scooby-Doo. All live action. 
let's give him another shot. And let's bring on Ludacris and Will Arnett as a buddy cop duo. And let's make some of the worst CGI animal mouth flaps we've ever seen. And hey, why don't, why don't for good measure, we make it make a whole sequence about the dog having his balls felt up. And have a whole dream sequence about him basically trying to cut, cut, cut himself off from the fact that he's technically being molested because he's a sentient human being. Because he's a sentient creature. Funny how that's the part that got cut out of this movie and not, you know, everything else. Because nobody should see this. Nobody should watch this. Everything about this is garbage. It is... The fact that you would allow this this man to make another... Who is this? I've, I've already forgotten the man's name. But he should... He should forever live in infamy for just the worst of 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 of, of films... To be shown. Raja Gosnell. Once again. The man who directed the Smurfs. The man who directed. The man who directed both Scooby-Doo. And Scooby-Doo Monsters Unleashed. The director of Big Mama's House. And the director of. Beverly Hills Chihuahua. Oh and the Smurfs too. Clearly one of the. And he's already. In in production. In pre-production for his next movie. About us, about some stepson of a retired CIA agent, foregoes a video game conference to help his stepfather end a Cold War era mission, starring Morgan Freeman. These this man continues to get work. He has another movie announced called Lost Case, which is about. Lost luggage? It's lost luggage. It's an animated movie about lost luggage. And the 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 artwork for it is so hideous. It's hideous. It's an. Why is this man? Why does this? Why are you giving this man warm work? This looks like one of those really terrible Pixar knockoff movies. What is this? What is this move? Why is this man? Who is giving this man work? Why? Why? He has proven himself to be terrible. Why would you continue to give him? It's not even like he's financially successful. Show Dog's completely bombed. Why is he still getting? What connections does he have that he continues to get work? He's clearly not good at it. <sighs> Show Dog's. Completely reprehensible that a movie that was clearly made for 2002 came out in 2018. I thought we were done with this crap. Number two. Alright, be forewarned, this one is about starting to get about politics and personal beliefs. Because number two, it's God's Not Dead, A Light in the Darkness. Now, I should also say that just because, you know, I'm an atheist, I'm an outspoken atheist, and I am, you know, I am not only liberal, but leaning further to the left every day, honestly. There, I can, I, once again, I've said this before, I don't, have an, I don't have it out for movies about religion. 
I still think Philomena is an amazing movie. I still think Doubt is an amazing movie. I myself have sat on an idea for a movie that dealt with a, that has dealt with crisis of faith from a, you know from a, from a woman and her after her two kids have kind of fallen out of you know have kind of fallen one's one's gay one's an atheist and she's kind of like she and it's about her struggling with are her kids going to heaven and it's about her dealing with what she believes because her church says her kids are are going to hell but she can't believe that she you know she can't believe that she did a good job and that her kids are bad people i've had like you can do good stories about religion pure Flix has never done a good story about religion never not once and the god's not dead series is the definitive proof of that god's not dead is one of the worst franchises I've ever seen. Every instance of that movie. That's right. No, Fifty Shades came out, came in 2015. God's Not Dead topped my 2014 list. Because that is a reprehensible movie. And here, they try to go all out. They try to showcase, oh no, we're showing both sides of the argument now. And But at the same time, this Pastor Dave is genuinely terrible at his job he's a terrible pastor his church is failing because he's a terrible pastor no one wants to be around him and he self-destructs spectacularly and he's a complete moron and honestly the best thing to come out of this entire franchise comes from god from the god awful movies crew uh where eli bosnick and his wife anna made a parody song of the newsboys theme Called God's Not Dead, He Was Never Alive. That's the only good thing to come out of this franchise. Nothing else has, because it is absolutely atrocious. And anything about that, anything about the, uh, any coherent or decent storytelling to, is never found in Pure Because it's not about good storytelling. It's not about compelling drama. It is literally about preaching to the converted. And it's basically what rap critic complained about Christian rap. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, who don't follow Rap Critic, uh, for a while, uh, in specifically his, um, oh god, who's the Christian Eminem guy that he reviewed? Let me pull him up. I forget um, the guy's name, but apparently he got better. But the first, uh, the first uh, review he did for this guy, ah, uh, crap. Um, I'm trying to find. Oh. I'll, I'll I'll find the one he did earlier this year. Uh, come on, uh, ba ba Outcast, Bad and Bougie. Who? Why can't I remember this guy's? I, I don't listen. I, I don't. I don't listen to a lot of hip hop. Less, you know, most of my modern hip hop comes from guys like the rap critic. Uh, but I'm trying to remember this guy's. Yeah, let's go to let's just go to his channel. I'm sorry, this is all honestly. This is way more interesting than uh, the movie. I'm t- than God's Not Dead. Me, I'm telling, I'm 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 telling you honestly. Me trying to dig through rap critics, uh, rap critics, uh, up. Oh, wait, I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. Um. Uh, Uh, NF is the rapper. Me trying to look up uh, his uh, who the Christian rapper is through the rap critics videos is way more interesting than this movie. And I am not lying. That is not an exaggeration. That is not a that is not that is not a fabrication. 
That is the truth. God's Not Dead 3 is less interesting than me casually looking up rap the rap, rap through, looking through the rap critics uh upload history to try and figure out the name of a christian rapper in order to explain a reference i made that without exaggeration that is the god's honest the god's honest truth uh but yeah chris uh he uh rap critic brought up in his uh review of that his specific review of uh of that nf song that uh it was real the song in question because he reviewed uh, a later song by nf and nf seemed to have improved somewhat but for real he basically broke down in the real uh review he broke down essentially his issues with christian media and it speaks especially to the pure flicks uh to the pure flicks uh mindset the idea that you're already preaching to the converted you're not here to tell a good story you're not here to be interesting or compelling or dramatic drama comes from questioning your faith and rap critic is himself um a devout christian and so he but he recognizes that being like god is the answer to everything isn't interesting he wants interesting he wants he wants compelling he wants real drama and if you've already got the answer to your to all your problems there is no drama if the answer to everything is Jesus, where's the drama? So yeah, that's why Pure Flix movies are terrible because they completely undermine whatever drama there is to be had because the answer is always Jesus. When, the ans- when you always have the answer to your problems, you no longer have problems and there is no drama. So God's Not Dead 3, uh, I think it's the lowest performing of all of them. So hopefully there's no more of that franchise. I think they're finally done and they can just continue to pump out other terrible Christian movies. Look what I got. Look what you taught me. Number one. <sighs> this is probably going to get. I had to turn off comments for my Instagram post about this because I just was sick of dealing with the apologists and the supporters clogging up my comment feed with inane garbage. And quite frankly, I'm not here to debate you. I didn't come here to debate. I'm not part of a I'm not part of a high school rhetoric squad. I'm not here to debate you. I don't owe you a debate. I'm here to speak. Uh, this is my platform. I'm not here to give you a platform. I don't owe you a platform. I'm here to speak my thoughts, my opinions on movies. And if that, and sometimes. You can't, people say, leave the politics out of video games, leave the politics out of music, leave the politics out of art. Art without politics isn't real art. It's commercial art. It's there. And even then, you can't take the art out of some, the politics out of something when literally politics is everything. Everything is politics. Just like everything is chemicals, anything dealing with society is inherently political. You just don't like dealing with it because you don't like talking about it. And I get it. I get we get the constant, constant debates are, are stressful and, and mind-melting and not everybody needs to engage in that. 
Some people just need to vent their frustrations, acknowledge their thoughts, and deal with it. Not everybody is deserve. Not everybody owes a debate for for their thoughts and opinions. You don't owe somebody an explanation and a and a six hundred word thesis on why you think Dinesh D'Souza is wrong. Thankfully, there is a Twitter feed for an actual historian whose main goal is to is to completely um, uh, undercut everything Dinesh D'Souza, every in any thought Dinesh D'Souza has. With the actual history behind it. And I'm going to look up him. And meet the fact. And me looking up this historian's name on Twitter. And so I can plug him. Is way more interesting. Than the movie that Dinesh D'Souza made. Um, Twitter. Trying to find this guy's Twitter account because he's also got an amazing Twitter account. Uh, Kevin Cruz. Uh, in fact, let's pull up his Twitter. Oh, wait. Here we go. Kevin Cruz, uh, Kevin Levin uh, is his um, is his is his username. Uh, in fact, the Google search turned up a perfect uh, tweet in regard to this to this uh, to the, my number one. My least favorite movie of 2018, which is Dinesh D'Souza's, if it hasn't been made clear enough, Death of a Nation. Dinesh D'Souza's Death of a Nation is the worst movie I saw this year, in my opinion. Uh, it is unfortunate that Professor Alan uh, Gelzo agreed to be interviewed for Dinesh D'Souza's silly movie, Death of a Nation. I have learned an incredible amount of the Civil War and Reconstruction from Gelzo. Wonder if he is aware of how his footage is being used. So, Kevin Kevin Levin, oh, on Twitter, uh, Kevin, I don't know that. Uh, that's not that's not him. That's somebody else. That's another historian. Um, that's a Civil War historian, Kevin Levin. Uh, Kevin Cruz is goes. I'm, I'm guessing probably. Uh, oh my God, that guy's name is literally Kevin Levin. Oh, oh, what parents? Why would you do that? Parents, don't do that. No, Kevin M. Cruz is um is the actual historian I'm thinking of. Uh. He uh, he's a histor- he's a historian. He talked he's talked written books about white flight, uh, suburban history. Uh, you know suburban history, spaces of the modern city, fog of war, one nation under God, fault lines. He is you know a fair. He is a well respected and a, an accomplished historian, and he has no problem speaking truth to these assholes who will clearly um, clearly uh, misrepresent history. Uh, but but and I think he, even he so look. I would I would also say look up Kevin Cruz and see if he I think he's also done a um a tweet by a, a tweet a, a sort of Twitter breakdown of definition that's way more accomplished than mine was. Uh so, yeah, so the Democratic Party fought against every major civil rights act in US history, including those that introduced, passed, and signed into law, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. <laughs> Kevin Cruz has no has no chill when it comes to people misrepresenting history, and I love him. Kevin M. Cruz on Twitter, everybody, because he is way more interesting than this movie, and this movie is garbage. I'm talking about anything else besides this movie because I think I'm going to drive myself crazy trying to break down everything awful about this movie. Like, 
From a political standpoint, it's absolute hogwash. It is complete fabrication and misrepresentation of actual history in order to propagate far-right ideologies. And he even... Dinesh D'Souza quotes actual conspiracy theories in this movie. In his supposed documentary, he purports actual conspiracy conspiracy theories, specifically the deep state. In in a quote-unquote documentary... The documentarian, who is himself a Christian apologist and a full-on right-wing propagandist, suggests that the deep state is in fact a reality and uses people who have who are quote-unquote reliable to prove that the deep state is real. This is the level of crazy we're dealing with. And if you don't know what the deep state is, consider yourself lucky. You don't want to know these things. Some things are best left only known to those who can deal with the craziness. Because, ugh, ugh. Yes. In a quote-unquote documentary, a, a propagandist is peddling conspiracy theories as fact. So, yes. It, politics aside, this is reprehensible as a documentarian. In the same year that Michael Moore gave a much better documentary, like, that's the thing. I owe Michael Moore an apology time and again whenever I bring up the Nesta Souza because people have compared them as equals. Michael Moore is, like, yeah, I mean, Michael Moore is clearly a showman. He's not so much a documentarian as he is sort of, uh, you know, the kind of guy who wants to purport. You know, he's very much about pur- purporting uh, truth to power, but he's also the center of attention. I think Ken Burns is a better documentarian than Michael Moore, ultimately. And Michael Moore, but Michael Moore's documentary this year, uh, Fahrenheit nine, Fahrenheit eleven nine, was not was just as biting towards the Democrats as it was towards the Republicans. It ne- as much as he, he as much as he you know spoke truth to the to the spoke truth to the Trump administration. He never denied the fact that the problems also lie inherently within the Democratic Party and their unwillingness. To move for to allow for to be itself to be the the party of the left instead of the party of the center, he himself has always been critical of corporate Democrats and of center you know centrist Democrats who don't allow the who more more than often align themselves with Republicans rather than allow the party to move further to the left to truly represent progressives, and I agree with him. I think he's kind of I th- once again I think he's kind of a show off, but at the same point I agree with him. And also, he's a way better filmmaker than Dinesh D'Souza. They're, they are not even in the same league. Dinesh D'Souza, comparing Dinesh D'Souza to Michael Moore in terms of filmmaking is like comparing somebody from who works for Pure Flick. It's like comparing David A.R. White to Steven Spielberg. Like, at least Michael Moore understands the craft of filmmaking. At least Michael Moore puts effort and knows how to knows how to work the camera and knows how to edit film in such a way to make it work as a film in and of itself, whether you agree with it or not. Dinesh D'Souza is an incompetent hack who has no idea how genuine filmmaking works and is just there to parrot ideas by far-right think tanks in order to undermine people's trust in actual facts. He is not there. He is there to be a mouthpiece for blithering idiots and whack jobs who believe in the who believe in crazy conspiracy theories rather than acknowledge the fact 
that is right there in front of us, which is you're being duped. You have been conned. You have been had. You are, you have been duped. It is okay to acknowledge that you have been duped to make up, to have won the election and then act like you're still the victim. While, while being the one in power is a level of madness unseen by most major civilizations. There's never been anything quite like this. And for a so-called documentarian to play up those kinds of, that kind of mentality is reprehensible. And suffice to say that actual historians can break down every thing wrong with the Dinesh D'Souza movie because it's ter- because it's not written from the aspect of somebody who understands history. It is propaganda, short and simple. And to be release it as though it were a document documentary or in fact a real movie is reprehensible. And movie theaters should not I mean, the only reason movie theaters do it is because they know his stupid, stupid fan base was willing to pay for his garbage. And thankfully there weren't many people so it's not so thankfully the people in my area are not as fervent for it for his garbage but they are here they are here they regard him as a source a respectable source and that is the saddest fact of all that there are plenty of people who are across the political spectrum who are way better sources of knowledge than Dinesh D'Souza but you choose to you choose to support Dinesh D'Souza and that's the saddest part of all fun fact i used to be a fan of the Adam Carolla show and I think it took him bringing on Dinesh D'Souza and giving that hack a platform that I kind of realize. Adam Carolla is an idiot. Adam Carolla is a hack who got lucky because he was friends with Jimmy Kimmel. Let's be frank. He has sure he's got his radio. He had his radio show that turned into a podcast, and he's got had his fans for, and he's had his fans that supported him. But when it came down to it, he's not that creative. He's not a good filmmaker. Clearly, he's ju- and he's not a very good person. Let's be let's be real. He is kind of a hack. And the fact that and here's the fun fact: while I was a fan of his, he would constantly demean everything about who I am as a person to the point that I felt depressed enough to commit suicide. I was so sad that Adam Carolla wouldn't like me. Think of how think of how miserable that must have been for me. To think that a man of the caliber of Adam Corolla wouldn't like me. That I consider that worthy of being depressed. I am so glad I gave up on that hack. He is such a waste. And the fact that he supports you know, crackpots like Dinesh D'Souza and give him a and gives him a platform kinda of gives you a, a kinda of gives you the an understanding of Adam Corolla as a person. Kind of how PewDiePie supports white supremacists. And everyone's like, well, what's wrong with PewDiePie? He's giving his platform to support white supremacists. Gee, maybe if that's the kind of people he supports and shares and tells his fan base to go visit on his channel, maybe he's not a good person. You know, food for thought. All right, let's get into, this is starting to get overlong, so let's get into the final category, the blandest movies of 2018. These are This is a category that I added in at, when I used to be a fan of Yahtzee before I also gave up on that hack. Uh, yeah, Yahtzee from The Escape, the man keeping The Escapist up and running, supposedly. I have no idea if he's even making videos anymore. I gave up on him. 
But yeah, I ended the bland. But I still think the blandest category is worthy of note. The blandest movies are the movies that have no reason for existing. These are the sh- movies that do nothing, add nothing to the add nothing to the culture, add nothing to the you know don't present compelling stories. They waste your time. So these are the so before we get into the top seven, here are some honorable mentions for the of movies that completely wasted my time. First up, we have a drift. Needless to say, a drift is a very much time waster. What could have been a compelling story of survival is basically just two hours of your time wasted uh, watching hey, uh, watching uh, the chick from the from Divergent, you know, try you know pretend to be on a boat, and nothing against uh, what's her name. I can't remember her name. Well, I, I cannot remember anybody's name anymore. Uh, my brain is gone. Uh, Haley something. Not Haley Steinfeld. That's who I keep thinking of. What is... Let me look up Divergent because she's the top build. Um, Shailene Woodley. Why did I think Haley? I think I'm still thinking of Haley Steinfeld from Bumblebee because that's actually something good that I wanted to think about. Um, but yeah, Shailene Woodley is not a bad actress. But her this movie did not was a what proved that she cannot carry a, something like this as if it's going to be completely boring and waste your time. Uh, after that, we've got the Pure Flix movie Indivisible, which once again, which wasn't offensive to the point uh, like got death like God's Not Dead three or any or some of the other Pure Flix movies. More often than not, Pure Flix just wastes my time because once again. They're just they 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 bring up drama in the form of when when the answer to the drama is Christ. So when you have the answer to all your problems, you have no more drama, and so you basically just waste everyone's time. Uh, in that same vein, the Miracle Season, which isn't even definitive enough to be a Christian movie, it's just a bland, no nothing of a volleyball high school movie. Like, oh, here's a story of this girl's life, of this girl whose death inspired her team to win the championship. And it doesn't, and it's like literally every sports movie ever, and only with tinges of what you would see in a Christian movie. But it doesn't even go so far as to be a Christian movie. So it's, it's not even Christian, it's family friendly. And I think that's the, and that's worse, and I think that's almost worse. Because at least with Christians, you you have a conviction, you have a belief Family friendly is the is is like mayonnaise. It's like Miracle Whip to mayonnaise. Is that a good comparison? I've never had either. I've never liked mayonnaise, but it's it's all of, it's it's all it's all of the all of the theme all of the presentation. None of the conviction. It's all you know. It's it's like it's like a brand X version of something that's made by hand. You know, it's comparing a. It's like comparing. A McDonald's hamburger to a Five Guys hamburger. The Christian movie at least has the conviction to make what they believe in. The family-friendly crowd doesn't even have that. They don't. They don't. They only. They. They are not convicted enough to 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 make something worthwhile. They just know that fa- that grandma needs something to take the kids to. So yeah. Uh, moving on, we've got Hunter Killer. Which is basically Hunt for Red October if it was made by people who have no idea how to make movies. So, it's, yeah, it, this is clearly trying to be Hunt for Red October, but it's 
it, it is such a waste of a premise. Like the idea that they're preventing World War Three between the Americans and the Russians, and there's a coup in the Russian administration, but none of it plays out. It's all bland, and it's it it should have been released direct to TNT, not in theaters. This did not deserve to be. That's the other thing about this list. This list, most of the movies on this list didn't deserve to be seen in a theater. They don't warrant theatrical release. You should not be paying 10 bucks a head to see this. You should be watching this as part of your cable package or as part of your monthly Netflix or yearly Amazon subscription. You don't don't need to see this for 10 bucks a head. Uh, Continuing that, one of the worst movies of the year, one of the few zero percenters and on Rotten Tomatoes for as garbage a website as they are, they actually got this right. Gotti is a is a boring, takes one of the most compelling stories of 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 modern day of modern day mob life and turns it into a boring boring slog of a movie. And the worst part is it was promoted by MoviePass back when they were trying to be respectable. That's right, MoviePass. Not not only was promoted by MoviePass, so you got to see that free when you couldn't see other movies for free, but they also were paid for bots to upvote the movie on Rotten Tomatoes to make it look like the critics had it out for this movie, when really they were padding the numbers, because they knew this movie was crap, and they just didn't want it to try and make up for the money they spent on it. Uh, Continuing in that line, uh, we've got Second Act. One of the last minute entries on this on this list. Nothing waste. Yeah, it just wasted my time. This this is a movie that could have been interesting. In the right hands, it would have been interesting, but instead, it's just Jennifer Lopez in a movie that manages to barely exist. So congratulations for that. And then last of the honorable mentions, Overboard, the Overboard remake. Sands off any of the edges that made that last movie interesting. Like, that's the thing. Overboard is problematic. And this manages to keep most of the problematic nature of it, but sands off any of the interesting edge that the the original had. Overboard is only popular because of TV repetition. Same as with, same oddly enough, as with It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Story. They only got popular because of constant rotation on TV. So they're trying to remake it in 2018 of all years, and to add it and to make and to basically make it a make it the same way that Kurt Russell and uh, and um, Goldie Hawn were in a relationship. At least they had chemistry. At least they had passion. Vim, you felt the energy in the room when they were together. Even though Eugenio Derbez and Anna Faris ended up in a relationship as a result of this movie, you see none of that chemistry on screen. None of that chemistry is there between them. There is no fire. There is no passion. There is no spark. It just manages to exist. And much like the original, it'll probably see heavy rotation on on TNT or something. Yeah, this was a... Not, yeah, take, you've managed to take what was an interesting movie, at least. You could talk about... There was something to talk about. There were some good aspects within it. There was a reason to watch it, and you took out any actual reason to watch it. So, yeah. Uh, Let's get into the list proper, shall we? The Popcorn Junkies, seven blandest movies of 2018. Number seven. 2018 saw a lot of movies dealing with um, 
Well, not a lot. They, well, there were only two, I think. Well, there was, I mean, there were several. There was Beirut, uh, would, uh, but what I'm talking about is movies that deal with uh, Israel and Palestine and that conflict. And what was the other one that came out this year? Beirut kind of dealt with that tangentially. Um, there was another one. Uh, oh, um, well, it dealt with Isra- Israeli operations. I'm thinking of um, the one where Ben Kingsley plays Adolf Eichmann. Uh, Operation Finale. Uh, so, oper- and Operation Finale was a solid movie. And I have my issues with the Israeli government... But their story, the stories of uh, Mossad and some of their, uh, I mean, just like with America and some of their operations uh, and their, you know, covert operations, Mossad has some story. There is story. There are stories to be told about some of their operations. And Seven Days in Tebby could have been one of those. It just wasn't. It was two hours of my time that could have been spent giving me insight into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The reason for the hijacking, the planning for the hijacking that led to the rescuing of the hostages, it could have given me something compelling to watch, and yet it didn't. It just didn't give me anything to do. It was such a wasted opportunity. You could have, and and that's the other thing too, it had a solid cast behind it. Uh, Rosamund Pike was kind of the lead actress, uh, and in the year where she played, um, you know, war correspondent in one one of the best movies... Um, I've seen, what was, God, I, I'm so bad at remembering stuff today, but yeah, her, 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 uh, last movie I saw her in, stuff on TV, uh, oh, she was also in, that's right, she was also in Watership Down as the Black, Black, Black Rabbit of Inlay, but A Private War, uh, and she was also in Beirut, so she was in another one of these movies. I'm guessing Beirut was probably better. Seven Days in Entebbe just just wasted my time. Just there was no reason to sit through it. There nothing about the movie warranted my attention, and that's the sad part. Is that this story could is compelling, but I get the feeling if you watch the documentary about this uh, about this hijacking and about the rescue attempt. It would be way better put together than this movie was. Number six. Number six was probably the. L- no, we got one more entry that was that was later than that, but uh, the probably the biggest entry on this list, uh, and that's the Nutcracker on the Four Realms. This, this is a massive tentpole Disney release. It is them tying back into Fantasia of all things. It is them trying to bring for, trying to bring back the Nutcracker story, you know, storyline, and try to bring new life into it and it was so uninspired just i had like that's the thing with the live action remakes at least the original story that they're retelling was compelling for the most part you know beauty and the beast was still a good story at least in the original form the remake not so much but this movie takes the, takes the story of the Nutcracker and makes it like a YA, like a terrible YA novel adaptation version of it. Like everything about the storyline, it, it feels like what you would get if a YA novel writer, novelist, uh, attempted to retell the the Nutcracker and the four Nutcracker storyline for a modern day readership. And then it felt, but instead of doing that, it, it was just Disney hiring that YA novelist to write the screenplay. 
for their movie. That's what this feels like. It feels like a very weak... Like, that's the thing. Over on Living in the Stacks, we read Looking Glass Wars, which is a solid retelling, for the most part, of the Alice in Wonderland storyline, but with the YA mindset of the, you know, uh, uh, you know, the YA tropes were all there, but there was a good story to be told there as well. And even though it was very, very much in the YA genre, it was still a good story. This feels like all of that without any of the good story elements. Everything about, everything that happens can be seen from a mile away, coming from a mile away. The effects and design aren't even compelling enough to say, oh, at least the production design put it, you know, made it look cool. It's not really all that cool looking. It just kind of... Blah. Everything. It's just kind of there. It feels like a pat. It feels like padding to wait out until all of the new releases coming out next year. The live action release, the live action remakes for next year. This feels like they're, you know, they're just like, look, we got, we got a hole in the schedule. Let's just put in Nutcracker there. Who cares? Because I don't, because I, I really don't feel like anybody cared about making this movie. Genuinely speaking, like even the actors aren't very good in it. Kira Knightley is completely wasted, as is um, Helen Mirren. And the two leads are just boring. Just, ugh. Everything about this was, was a waste. Number five. Number five, the sequel nobody wanted. Mamma Mia, here we go again. Staying true to the original, even the younger versions of the, of the men can't sing. <sighs> I hear people, like... My friend Diana, uh, who does Macintosh and Mod and is over on um, Kids with Bikes, uh, when I brought up that I was seeing this movie on Living in the Stacks, she said it best. Just go listen to Abba Gold. You don't need to watch this movie. If you like Abba music, just go listen to Abba Gold. You don't need to hear celebrities suck at karaoke for Abba music. And she's absolutely right. This is celebrities kind of hitting or missing at karaoke of Abba but with a really terrible rom-com story behind it. Like, this is even lamer than the first movie. The first movie at least had kitsch, it had camp, it had some charm. My mom, who is a who loves the first Mamma Mia movie, I could have easily asked her to come to this movie with me. It's like, hey mom, you love Mamma Mia. Want to see the sequel? She's like, there's a sequel? And as soon as she found out there's a sequel, she's like, no, thank you. So a fan... Of the of the of the of the first movie, took a heard didn't know there was going to be a sequel, and once she heard there was a sequel, she had no interest in seeing it. Mamma Mia two in a nutshell. We have no there's no reason for it to exist, but here it is. Number four. This is the one that popped up at the last second and uh, and on my list. Well, besides second act in the honorable mentions, that was the latest entry, but the last entry in the list proper. Was the possession of Hannah Grace. Man, you just, you really don't even need to try with horror, do you? Because that's the problem. I like horror. I think good horror, I think the problem is good horror is so much harder to come by. Because so much of horror is just every lazy filmmaker's attempt to just peddle the same storyline again and again with diminishing returns. It's Blumhouse when they when they when they have good filmmakers to, to telling really cool compelling horror stories, 
they give some of the best horror that come out. Sinister, Get Out, just some of the best horror in decades. And yet, so much horror is just, who cares? Just pump it out. Horror fans don't care. They don't care about quality. They just want, and that's the thing. I think I, what I feel sorry for most is horror fans. Because they, there's a reason they see these horror movies. They want to feel scared. They want that energy. They want that They want that feeling of tension and release that they get from a horror movie. And then they get saddled with crap like this? They don't deserve this. Just because they like tension and release and they like feel that feeling of being, of, of being scared, of being startled, if nothing else. And to give, to give them this? It shows a real, real distaste for your fan base. It feels, it feels like you have no consideration for your audience. When you take a look, when you take a look at horror and what horror fans like, and you say, you get the possession of Hannah Grace, which is just the laziest, who cares attempt I've ever seen from a, uh, from a possession movie. Anything good about a possession movie is not in this. It is just the laziest, who cares, get it done, pump it out, put it in theaters. We'll make a quick buck I've ever seen from horror this year. And that's just this year. Ugh, we can do better. We should always strive to do better. Even if it's done on the cheap, cheap can still be done with a modicum of passion and proof that you... We're, we're already seeing circulation of the trailer for us, Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out. He clearly isn't spending a big budget. He's probably spend, he probably isn't even spending $10 million. And yet, he clearly has a vision. He has a story he wants to tell. Even Blumhouse, whenever they're pumping out one of their bottom-of-the-barrel horror movies, somebody gave enough of a damn to make that, to make something. I can't say that about the possession of Hannah Grace. I can't imagine anybody cared enough to put and making this movie to put out something of quality because because that's the thing if somebody cared and it and it couldn't even show up on screen that's the worst part number three all right yeah the big bad atheist has a bunch of christian movies on this list but hear me out the number one is not a christian movie but three and two are number three is is another movie where there is no drama there is no story it's it's literally just the you know the the uh, gospel you know the gospel writer Luke hearing Paul retell his life story and a bunch of people in rags pretending it's the middle pretending it's the pretending it's the turn of the turn of the common era into the you know into the turning of the common era post Jesus's death early days of Christendom and any of the re- like that's the thing the early days of Christian of Christianity are or could easily be made for a good movie. You're talking about the rise of a cult into a religion, into a force to be reckoned with within society, within cultures, a, a, a kingmaker, a, a, something that has shaped the history of Western civilization. And the, to show its early beginnings could be really compelling. And yet, let's just hear old man Paul tell his life story and watch it in flashback. And let's just, let's just watch a bunch of people in rags and sandals walk around and talk. 
that's all there is. This is a bunch of people in rags and sandals walking around and talking. Complete, but of course, we also have to throw in the the Roman official who's like, I don't believe in this Christianity. Oh, look, I have been, I have seen the light of God. It has done miracles. I now believe. And it's the turning of the Romans because that's, that's ever since like freaking Ben-Hur. It's always been the, the theme of early, early Christian movies literally early Christianity movies uh, is to be like the Romans see the light of God. They truly, he was working miracles and it's like, uh, yeah, I get it. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. You kind of have to do this at this point. It's a trope. So Paul, apostle of Christ is just a bunch of people in rags talking to each other. Nothing, nothing interesting happens at all. Number two. Number th- number two is a pure flicks movie. Shock of shocks. Once again, that once again, when the answer and everything is Jeebus or God, then you have no drama. And here, pure flicks took the bananas, absolutely off the wall bug nut story of Samson, and once again turned it into a boring direct to video movie that somehow ended up in theaters. This movie isn't even bad enough to be funny. It's not bad. It's not offensive enough to end up on my worst the worst list. It is a complete. It's a two hour. It's two hours of my time that was taken from me, and nothing of value was gained. And and the only thing of value I've lost was my time. Like that's a thing. When you know when you act. The problem is Christian. Not all Christians read the Bible. They only know the stories as told to them. Really, the only people, really, the people I know the most who know the Bible are atheists who actually read the damn thing. They actually read about the ba- throwing the babies against the rocks. They read about all the crazy raping and pillaging and monstrous stuff that is that is you know all the stuff about slavery being condoned by God because it's about people who don't worship Him. And you what read the story of Samson from Genesis, and it is absolutely insane, like a lot of Genesis is, and. This is no, it's not Genesis. I think it's Judges that Samson was in. Whatever book Samson was in, it's a bug nuts banana story when you read it. And everything about that was cut out in order to make a boring, boring sword and sandals movie. The effects are terrible, but they're not funny enough. And they're only, but they're only slightly. They only bring out a slight chuckle. They're they're not funny. They're not laugh out loud bad. You've got a man, you've got like Steve, I think, uh, Steve, not Steve Zahn, um, what's his name? The guy from, the guy from Titanic, uh, Billy Zane. You've got Billy Zane in here, but there's the guy playing his son is way more Billy Zane than Billy Zane is. Hell, you've even got, you even got, uh, they even screwed up the whole Samson and Delilah story. Like, that's the thing. Delilah, the whole point behind Samson and Delilah was Delilah was a temptress who tricked Samson into giving him, giving her the, the truth about his power, where his power comes from, so that she can exploit him for the Philistines. And in the book, and in the Bible, she tricks him three times. Three times she tricks him into giving away fakes. She, he, she betrays him three times and he still gives her his secret. Samson is an idiot, y'all. But 
so I, but even in this, they but they they downplay Delilah as the evil temptress like whore, like like. And like every interpretation of Samson and Delilah has always played Delilah as the temptress who betrays Samson as the evil whore. And he, here, she's just chick. She's just some chick. She kind of has feelings for Samson. But she still betrays him. She's still kind of a bitch. But she's just kind of, once again, everyone just kind of exists. And nothing... And, and, and all the weird banana stuff about um, Samson's story is cut out because they know, they know if they were true to the source material, nobody would watch it. Because Samson is a monstrous person in the Bible, from what I remember. And they watered it down and made it soluble, it made it, made it watchable for the family-friendly crowd. Family values. And it completely misrepresents the source material. But at the same time, who cares? Like, can you really care that they misrepresented Samson? Although they managed to keep in the stupid idea of the fact that he, have he made that he made up a riddle about honey about bees setting a nest and making honey in the carcass of a lion, and somehow that's a riddle. Oh, like, isn't the point of a riddle that it's supposed to be, like, wake, making you think about the way the world works, you know? Like, the whole idea of, oh, what walks on four legs, starts on four legs, walks on two legs, and walks on three legs by evening. Oh, it's a man living his life. It's supposed to be, make you think, it's a, it's a mind bender. What's, 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 what do you, what, how is you, you managing to see bees nesting in a lion's carcass a riddle? That's not a riddle. It's stupid. But yeah, uh, Sa- the Sam- the Samson story when you read it from the Bible is insane, and that they made that that could have been funny, but they knew that wouldn't track well with modern audiences, so they just made something something to show your kids in Sunday school. I guess there's nothing of value to really watch this movie. It's such a waste. Number one. So in a year with. Really boring Christian movies. Uh, Mamma Mia 2. A Nutcracker. An attempt to make the Nutcracker into a fantasy epic. All of these sorts of things were all boring. But what was the most boring thing I saw this year? Two words. Dog days. Let me pitch you a movie. What if those, what if those really stupid anthology comedies that Gary Marshall made before he passed away was about, were about dog was mixed with videos of dogs on YouTube. That's this movie. This movie is the same pattern that Gary Marshall did with mother's day, Valentine's day, new year's Eve. And that was done with love. Actually the sort of anthology storyline but instead of centering it around anything interesting, it's literally just people and their dogs. This movie is an excuse to show dogs on screen. And whereas I have to sit through uh, Dog's Way Home next next month at some point in a couple of weeks, this movie, you you literally could have spent your time watching dog videos on YouTube or searching through r slash awe. And had more of a, a more of 
um, a life changing or even just or even just worthwhile experience than sitting through this movie. It's celebrities with dogs. You could just literally watch celebrities on Instagram with their dogs and it would get and it would be more interesting than this movie. This movie this movie is a boring rom-com that thinks throwing in puppies will make up for the fact that it's a boring boring rom-com. I I I, I you would be if, you, if there was one thing to co- good to come out of this movie, it would be Finn Wolfhard showing up on showing up on Game Grumps and being like, "Oh God, I was in that stupid Dog Days movie. I got to hang out with the guy, and then we got to hang out with dogs. That's the only good thing to co- like. If he was trashing the movie on Game Grumps, that would be the only good thing to come out of this whole experience because nothing of value was gained from this, and the only thing that was lost was time." I lost something valuable the most with Dog Days. Samson, at least they can talk about how crazy the biblical story is. Paul, Apostle of Christ. At least it it put in some effort to try and look like it was, you know, like it was early days of Christianity. Position of Hannah Grace. They did put effort into some of the special effects. Mama Mia, here we go again. They sang and danced. They sang and danced. Nutcracker in the Four Realms. It was a fantasy epic. At, at least it was trying. At least it was trying that hard. Seven Days in Entebbe. It had a decent source source material. You could go back and listen. You could go back and find out information about the actual, you know, actual hijack, Lufthansa hijacking that by uh, by those Palestinian liberation uh, supporters. That could be interesting. At least Dog Days. What do you gain from watching Dog Days? You watch puppies. And celebrities. You could literally watch celebrities with their puppies on Instagram and gain more from watching that because at least it's actual celebrities with their own pets. Here, it's it's random celebrities with random puppies in a story that in a in a boring story that doesn't amount to anything. Nothing of value was gained from this movie. And I think that's the biggest sign of a waste of your time. When you gain there is no gain from it. And the only thing of value lost was your time. Screw dog days. It's not even offensive. It's not even offensively bad. It's just boring. It's a waste of your time. And it do- and you and you should never. And the only time you should ever have it on is if you're in the background working on something else and it's on TV and you f- and you forgot to change the channel. You should not sit down and watch this. Don't waste your time. So yeah, those are my superlatives for 2018, and without and, and hopefully 2019 should be better. We're gonna and the next coming weeks, I'll be sure to start preparing for um for my look ahead into 2019 and what's to come. But for right now, uh, we'll we'll take a look back to the week that was in the box office report. And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's box office report. This weekend's box office was fairly boring. Uh, Although both uh, the premieres ended up in the top seven. So dropping out of our top seven, we saw Second Act uh, dropping down to number eight. And we saw Dr. Seuss's The Grinch finally dropping down to the number ten spot. And yeah, everything else is just kind of slowly. But everything else is pretty much in the same spot. Holmes and Watson premiered at number seven with seven point three million dollars. Uh, 
And let's see if they brought in anything else from foreign markets. Uh, okay, so domestically, they've so far they've earned nine, since it opened up on Christmas. It op- it uh, opened to nineteen million dollars and gained an extra four from foreign markets. So it made twenty three million dollars so far, which is just above half their budget. So it, with so unless it can manage to limp through January, I don't see this making any making its money back. It it could easily ju- be one of the biggest bombs of the year, which is good because it deserves to be. So yeah, there's that. Uh, Vice premiered ahead of that with seven point seven million dollars on the weekend, but overall, since it opened up on Christmas, it's made seventeen million seventeen point six million dollars. And we'll take a look at that budget. I really wish they would just list budgets on Box Office Mojo. I know they like to try and hide their budget for some things, but come on, man. It's a reference website. Here we go. Uh, budget is six... Ooh. <laughs> the budget for Vice is estimated at $60 million. And it only brought, and it barely brought in twenty. Oh, that's precious. That's that's beautiful. Oh, I love it. Ah, <laughs> oh, couldn't have happened to a dumb room movie. All right, staying in number five, we've got the Mule, brought bringing in eleven point seven million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to sixty million dollars. So it's made back its budget, but it's still not a runaway success. People are, I think people are still trying to get, you know, took their time getting to it, but I don't think it'll, you know, you know, it's not, it's not like American Sniper or Million Dollar Baby levels of success or anything. Uh, Number four, we've got Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse bringing in $18.3 million, bringing its domestic total up to 103.6 million and it's, and it's, and it's worldwide gross up to $213.2 million. It's a it's a success. It's it's making bank, but more people went to see Venom. I find that so disturbing on so many levels. This is clearly the superior movie, and uh, God, staying at number three, we've got Bumblebee. Bumblebee uh, with twenty point five million dollars, bringing in its bringing its domestic gross up to sixty six point seven million, and its worldwide gross up to one hundred fifty six point seven million dollars. Which made which brought which made back its money uh, for budget, but it's not that is not. I think people have grown tired of Transformers thanks to Michael Bay. They've steadily dropped their, their numbers, so maybe this will perk things up a bit for the next time. But for right now, people have kind of given up. So it's sad to see, but it is what it is. Number two is Mary Poppins Returns again, with which brought in $28 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to 98.9, almost $100 million. Uh, and its worldwide gross up to $173 million. I forget what the budget is, and it's not on IMDb. I mean, it's not on... Um, it's not on... Box Box Office Mojo was also owned by Amazon. Why can't they just take the information from IMDb and put it on Box That's so bizarre. Uh, budget is a hundred estimated at one hundred and thirty million dollars. So once again, also made back its budget. Not exactly a runaway success. Not the kind that they were hoping for. So it's it is it is successful, just not the most successful. Especially when you consider how much this movie was marketed by Disney. 
So we'll see if it picks up over January, but for right now, it's it's just doing okay. Same as Bumblebee and Into the Spider-Verse. And then lastly, staying at number one is Aquaman, which brought in $51.5 million, bringing its domestic total up to $188.7 million, and its worldwide gross up to $748.7 million. Doesn't matter its budget, it's, it's making bank. All right, let me guess, China? $232 million from China. Called it. They love this crap. Uh, South Korea is doing $10 million. Russia brought in 12 Mexico brought in 16 uh, Netherlands brought in 10 Brazil brought in 16 But most of the money is coming from China. Uh, so, yeah. The, China, save, China saves the DCEU. Of course, what, I get, of course, think about it. I mean, when you think about it, when you don't have to worry about the story and you get to watch Pretty Colors... It's, you're, you're golden. It doesn't matter if your movie if the movie's crap. You got this. You got what you wanted out of it. It doesn't matter. You and and plus you don't have to sit through inane English garbage, inane English American garbage. So you got to see pretty colors, and you could basically make up your own story. Uh, that's not. That's got to be nice. Anyway, that's the box office report for this week. So now that we've looked at the week that was, let's take a look to the week ahead in trailer talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. There will only be one new release this weekend. Uh, Post-New Year's has always kind of been the the start of the... eh, Let's just put this out there. So, starting off 2019, we've got... Sony Pictures leading the leading the charge with their new horror movie, Escape Room. So let's take a look at that trailer. I really wish we'd get over oldie timey stuff as being scary. It's not scary. It's just old. God, it's such a stupid trope. I don't know who started it, but I think it's Blumhouse, maybe, or somebody else. Somebody tried to make a thing of old stuff is creepy. And sometimes, sure, but other times, it's just old. Who cares? Yeah. This serves as an entry voucher. For Minos Escape Rooms. Be the first to escape our most immersive room yet. Oh my god, I just got that reference. Minus. The labyrinth, the labyrinth of Minos. Oh my God! Does nobody does nobody in this universe read Greek liter read Greek mythology? We should look for clues. What are we looking for here? Anything that looks like a puzzle or a code. It looks like an oven dial. That looks real. It's kind of warming up in here. Uh, excuse me. We'd like our hit now, please. Well, that's creepy as hell. Hey, it's Meta. Hey, look at the CGI fire. No, it wasn't. I know CGI when I see it. Dumb question. Are we outside? So we get this figured out. So we get the hell out of here. Find the clues or die. Who would do this? I'm telling you, this is all tying into a jig to a Saw reboot. If Jigsaw doesn't come rolling in on a tricycle, I'm calling this whole thing a shenanigans. They're watching us. They know every 
You have modern day high definition cameras and you still connect them to a CRT TV? Do you know how much adapt how many adapters and wires you would need to make that happen? This is how you know people who don't know technology are making these movies. And they all look Everyone is dying to play. I'm not. I have to see this. I'm going to see more crap on Netflix this week than I am on than I am in theater. So, bleh. yeah. Who knows? Maybe I'll see. Maybe I'll take my nephew and we'll make it Bad Movie Squad. He and I, he and I live for riff tracking this kind of crap. Uh, but seriously, Minos. Nobody has any passing knowledge of Greek history. Please tell me somebody in there has passing knowledge of Greek mythology. Like. I'm not, I'm not talking about halfway through when it's like, oh my god, Minos. Guys, it's a labyrinth. Boosh, boosh. No, I'm talking about like minute one. Minos? Oh, no, it's Minos. It's a reference to uh, the labyrinth. This is an escape room. Guys, get it? Get it? Get it? Get it? Get it? Do you see? Do you see? Do you see? <sighs> so, yeah, that's what I've got looking forward to this week. So, now that 2018 is coming to a close. Uh, let's start. Let's head into the end of this podcast, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, please make sure to favorite the page and whitelist us on your ad blocker. And while you're there, check out some of our other fine programming. I've got uh, uh, we've we've got the first new episode of Living in the Stacks following on our new schedule coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, I need to get back in touch with Vanessa and Mike about maybe doing more. Like, that's the crazy thing. Not a lot of people are liking this page, but people are really liking Phantom of the Podcast. And we haven't put up a new episode of that in months. So, uh, I've also need to talk to Mike about something. Uh, that's the other thing. Uh, I've got some, in a, I've got a couple of things in the works. Uh, but those, those won't play out until uh, a couple of months in. And I'll keep everybody in the loop when that happens. I don't want to give too much away and make promises I can't keep, but I got some stuff in mind that I'm working on. So keep your eyes peeled and your ears. I'll make sure to let people know. Anyway, uh, if you don't want to follow us on, and of course, also uh, check out Vanessa's uh, podcast, Odd Vegas, and all this cool stuff Donna does. Uh, What's more with feeling? Uh, family business, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, Snarkast, all of that stuff is available through us. And if you yourself are a podcaster and you want to join our small network and help it grow and become a part of the family, then send all your inquiries to gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you and see if you're a good fit for us. Uh, otherwise, if you're listening to us on your various podcast providers, we're over on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, um, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Stitcher, and I was thinking of doing YouTube. But it's honestly not worth it since people don't really listen to podcasts. I know. People don't listen to podcasts on YouTube, Kitty. But uh, but I am also wanting to do Podbean. And the only way I can do that is if I can start bringing in some kind of income in some regard. But So once I can, once I can pump some money into posting there, I can use that as a pa- another patron outlet. And we'll see if that works better than Patreon, uh, which I haven't been plugging, sadly. <laughs> but... Uh, but yes, but yeah, I've been, you know, if you're, wherever your podcasts are, are available, you know, make sure you look up Popcorn Junkie. And if you see my orange mug chopping on popcorn, staring at the movies, then you, 
then you can subscribe and keep up to date on all the new episodes. Uh, and you can all and be be sure to leave a five star rating and review while you're there, so you can let people know that if you like the show and that they, they should check it out. Uh, and if you like the show as well, you can follow us on our very, on your various social media. We're at facebook.com slash popcorn junkie. That's where the main hub of this podcast is. You can also follow me on Twitter at corn junkie pod. That's where I do most of my random talking about movies and such. Uh, you can also follow me there for the Monchalongs and the uh, trailer talks that I do before new releases. And when I'm either at home watching something for the podcast or when I'm in theater, in an empty theater, and I can poke fun at it and do a little commentary of myself, commentary myself. So stay tuned for all that over on, over on Twitter. I want to try and figure out something to do with Instagram this year rather than just do small announcements and such. But, uh, uh, you know, once again, if somebody, Instagram I think it's a little bit harder for what I do specifically. And I've never been a big fan of Instagram. I've never been big on photos. So uh, we'll see if I can build up the Instagram this year, uh, this coming year, but and find something else to do on it. But what for what? Yeah, for, maybe I'll try to integrate the Stardust stuff there as well. Post, the, post save the video, post it to Instagram. I'll, I'll figure out something. That might be, that actually might be a good idea. Stay tuned for that. I might try to do that this this week. So follow on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast, and you might start seeing some videos popping up uh, there. Uh, speaking of Stardust, you can follow me there at Popcorn Junkie, and you can also check out all the other cool people there. Double Toasted are there. Uh, Mars Girl's been posting recently. Uh, you've also got the King of Stardust, as I have dubbed him. Epic voice guy, the internet's other John Bailey. He is the best of Stardust. He has mastered the platform. I have yet to see somebody equal him. So if you want to see cool reactions to trailers, to TV shows, to movies, check out Epic Voice Guy. I highly recommend him. And check out all the other cool people there. Come and join us. We're having fun over at Stardust. You should too. Share your thoughts on all the new releases, new movie, oh, new releases, old releases, movies, TV, trailers, whatever your thoughts are on movies, if you have movies and TV, if you have them, share them on Stardust. And then lastly, if there's anything you want to say to the podcast, any kind of feedback you want to give, uh, corrections I should make, um, share your thoughts. Uh, I will say once again, if you're here to debate me on Dinesh D'Souza and politics and whatnot, save it. I'm not here for that. But if you want to debate me on the merits of uh, movies, whether you like them or dislike them, it's talk about talk about that sort of stuff, then we can have a conversation. And you can share that with me at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you say specifically in the subject or the message that you give me explicit permission to share it on the podcast, I will do so. And then if you otherwise, I will simply paraphrase. Uh and of course, if you uh, you know if you have any other suggestions, maybe that you want me to review. Um, speaking of which, Patreon. I've been plugging that a lot lately, sadly, uh, mainly because it's been very. It's a ghost town over at Patreon. Uh, hopefully, it can build that up in 2019. Uh, but for Patreon, if you want to um, check out some of the cool much like some of the much along commentaries that I did, and some of the make a better movies that I did that I tried out. You see that over on you can hear that over on Patreon and get exclusive access to the new episodes before they come out, and hopefully gets access to exclusive content in the coming year. Uh, if not on Patreon, then I'm hoping through Podbean because I know they have a patron service as well, and that may be more active and better for better suited for podcasting than Patreon is. 
But for what it's worth, uh, yeah, check, check me out over on Patreon for right now at Popcorn Junkie at patreon.com slash Popcorn Junkie. And if you have a, as little as a dollar to give every month, you become a supporter of the podcast and you get to dictate some of the stuff that happens for the podcast. The, all that information is over on Patreon.com. Uh, so that about does it for this episode and this year in the Popcorn Junkie podcast. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And you know for what I'm seeing? 2019 should be a pretty good year for movies. We'll see as it comes. Happy New Year and... See you all in 2019. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. And I have a cat. Kitty is thankfully trying to alleviate my stress from talking about Dinesh D'Souza. I know. I know, Kit. I know. I know. I I, I know. I don't like Dinesh D'Souza either, but I gotta talk about him. I gotta talk about the bad man who makes bad movies. I'll get back to you in a bit, hon.